Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. That means, of course, it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to welcome Stephen Ryan from Dixoni Rare Plants. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, everybody. And it's not too bad a one. <laughs> <laughs> Been pretty bleak. <laughs> uh, we've had a few days up there where the little fingers all go white and, and oh. you think, oh, no, I just don't Only know. the little fingers? Yeah, well, well, actually all of them, really. Um, how are you, Karen? <laughs> uh, good morning, Karen. Oh, I'm sorry, that was just too funny. <laughs> we have to say good morning, actually, to Karen uh, Sutherland from Edible Eden Design. There you Hi, go. Pam. Now you're properly introduced. Yeah, you're probably introduced me now. I did naughty, yeah. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> now you can chat. Yeah. But I have to say, I do like the fact that winter is upon us. We're getting some rain. No, uh, no flurries? Uh, we've had a couple of little flurries up around my nursery and further up the hill, but not so much down towards my garden, So, because okay. you know, it's right at the bottom of the hill. Yep. Um, but last weekend, it felt like it was going to. Mm. <laughs> it got so chilly. I actually, uh, when the garden was open last weekend, pulled out and... It's actually a little old cast iron barbecue thing that I have in the shed that I haven't used for years. So I pulled it out and used it as a brazier and put some heat beads in it and people are sort of cuddling around it. (laughs) (laughs) It was so cold on Sunday afternoon. But there you go. Who cares? It's, It's all over and we've been there, done that now. Well, you know, you you had a few people come through, I guess. Yeah, look, the garden opening was really good. Uh, as people are probably aware, and actually I'll make a, a, a point here, if anybody's still got their guidebooks, my garden opening dates in the guidebook is in June, and I'm not sure which date it was now, but it, oh, it's, course, it's still yes. coming up as yes. far as the date in the guidebook. is. So concerned. don't turn Ooh. up. Don't turn up. The garden is not open. Uh, it was open last weekend uh, as the final opening for Open Gardens Australia, and it's a little bit confusing, but uh, the reason they pulled it back was that um, they didn't want to have any openings in June so that they could uh, finalise their books, work out you know how much money they have or haven't got, uh, sort all of their things out by the end of the financial year. So although I have dates in June in the book, they're all over now. So if you didn't make it up last weekend, I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. Um, but uh, having said that, we should also tell listeners that you are planning to open your garden again in the future. Oh, yeah, look, there, there's already a Victorian scheme incorporated. Uh, it looks like they'll have um, they'll have gardens up and running for a program in the spring. Um, so you know we will have garden openings. So that's that's undoubted. Um, I'm assuming that they'll include me in the gardens that they want to open at some stage or another. Uh, but we haven't had discussions about that yet. But, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, look, I'm hoping to continue opening the garden. And, look, for people out there who belong to clubs and things, something I don't think I've ever mentioned is that people can bring groups through my garden. So, you know, if they do, in fact, organise themselves early enough and book, um, a minimum of about 20 people, um, and we can organise all sorts of things around the garden. So if people do want to come up and and visit the garden, see what I'm doing, see whether I really do practice what I preach, uh, (laughs) uh, then, yeah, get a group together. Uh, it's a nice way to get a, a really personalised garden tour. Fantastic. It's the other thing about oh, it, yes. I mean, when mm. you have large crowds through the garden, I mean, I did spend quite a bit of time trying to chat to people in the garden over the weekend, and I did do 
a talk at 11 and 2 in the afternoon each day uh, on some of my practices and principles and things when I could drag a little audience around me. Um, but yeah, if you bring a group up, um, you do get really personal mm. service. You you get much more time to sort of chat and talk about what's going on in the garden and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's actually quite a, a good way of visiting gardens, I think, is to go out as a, mm. as a small bus group or mm. even a large bus group for that Absolutely. matter. Um, so yeah, so I'm very happy to do those sorts of things if people want to. So they can easily ring me at work or go into my website and send me an email or however other ways they deal with these things these days. Um, and, yeah, we can look at it. So, um, and look, especially at the moment, the garden's looking actually fantastic after an opening. That's the one best thing I like about having people through the garden. Isn't it great? <laughs> For the next couple of weeks afterwards, you can just sit back and go, ah. There's know, nothing to do. Yeah, yeah, and you can just watch Swan around enjoying it yourself. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, anybody who's got a really good garden out there and hasn't opened their garden, I'd recommend it actually. I mean, it can be full of angst when you're getting ready, mm. you know, because you're never sure everything's going to be right. And I, I have to say for the last two weeks before my opening, I was waiting for that killer frost to come in, oh, which didn't oh. happen, fortunately. Right. Uh, but it nearly always does. You know, if you've got an opening coming up, some disaster will happen. Yep. And, of course, I grow a lot of stuff in my garden that's a bit borderline. Uh, I've got Abyssinian bananas and uh, and mm. Iachromas and, and Brugmansias and things in the garden. And, of course, they just go black when there's a frost. I yes. mean, mm. They come mm. back later, but it's not the best look in the garden when you've got an opening <laughs> No, it's not. Uh, and the Plectranthuses look pretty ordinary when they're black as well. Um, and so I snuck through. Uh, so everything was looking fantastic. So I was really chuffed. This, uh, I think there was some higher being who was thinking, all right, this is, this is your last one, so let's be kind. Yep. Uh, and so apart from the fact that it was really cold and awful on the Sunday, the Saturday was actually quite pleasant, although cold, um, and we had 679 people through oh, the garden over the weekend. Fantastic. So for a late autumn opening in That's the country, great. Mm. Yep. Mm. that is really good figures. That Everybody is. was very pleased. So it does go to show that people do visit, will visit gardens and do visit gardens and so there is obviously a place for a new Victorian open garden. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. so um, yes, hopefully everybody will support the new organisation uh, when it gets up and starts its calendar um, so that we can show people that gardening in Victoria is still Do we have any predictions yet as to when it might get underway? Look, they have already pulled in uh, Rick Eckersley's garden as an opener um, but I'm not quite sure of the dates yet. So, okay. uh, But they've certainly got... <clears throat> You know they're going to have a major opening garden, so yeah, things will happen, and it will be in in the spring. So yep. uh, I guess watch this space. We'll hopefully have some information for people as soon as we can. Exactly. Uh, yes, they do already have a. a uh, an email address so you can go into Open Gardens Vic or whatever it's called um, and get in touch with people. Let them know that you're interested as well. Uh, I'm sure they're still looking for people who have skills. Uh, if there's people out there who want Actually, to help. Yes, yes, you know, definitely, the, yeah, definitely. People with computer skills, people with PR <laughs> skills. Mm. People with, you know, they don't have to be, skills. yeah, they don't have to mm. actually be horticultural skills per se. Mm. But, you know, if people are interested and they've got skills that might be useful. Um, I mean, I was chatting to uh, one of the people who are going to be on the new committee the other day when she came up to sort of bring a bottle of champagne for the end of the garden opening. Um, and we were chatting about wouldn't it be great if um, Open Gardens Victoria could do, you know, some major things 
in the in the sort of media sort of side of things. So perhaps people with media skills, perhaps somebody who's a good director or film crew or something where we could get something up and running. I mean, there's mm. all sorts of things we could look at. Oh, there's loads of possibilities. Yeah, you know, I would love to see a gardening program on television, maybe yep. Channel 31 or something like that, yep. which wouldn't be hideously <clears throat> expensive to do, but you need the people who've got the skills to run with it. Exactly. And I'm sure Open Gardens Victoria would be happy to be part of the scenario in... That well, sort of thing. Well, even even if they thought about maybe releasing a, a DVD every mm. year on, on some that, of the different that gardens really that have good. opened. Yeah, mm. yeah mm. look, there's lots of things, and, and they know that they have to start <laughs> thinking laterally and differently. Yep. Uh, I mean, there were issues with the previous scheme because it was national that won't be a problem for a Victorian-based scheme. Yes. But nonetheless, you know, you have to reinvent yourself every so often. So mm. I'm hoping the new scheme will be looking at every avenue, but it will need skills to do it. You know, there's got to be the people out there that can do these things. The people on the committee might be all very well-meaning, but they may not have all the skills that are required to move in those directions Mm -hmm. so yes anybody out there who knows they can do something really well i'm sure they'd like to hear from you Mm, absolutely so there you go so yes so opening gardens it's a great thing wonderful Mm. wonderful well i have to say a big thank you to peter and ab yeah they've filled in for me for the last five weeks which was a (laughs) sterling effort on their part so um so a big thank you if uh, you happen to be awake and listening. <laughs> They're probably having a nice sleep <laughs> probably, in this week. Yeah. <laughs> finally, they can have a Sunday morning yeah. off. But yes, yes. But um, as most of the listeners probably realise by now, I've been away in Italy looking at lots of Italian gardens, mm. um, only in northern Italy, I might add. We didn't get down south. But um, absolutely stunning, some of mm. the gardens. I mean, i I guess I was expecting to see a lot of the the formal gardens yeah, as you would, um, mm. as you would, mm. but um, also a lot of English park style gardens as well, mm. um, and some outrageous gardens that mm. were really just so over the top. What kind it's of ridiculous. Um, well, the obvious one, which I think most of our listeners and you two probably know of as well, is Villa Dest. Yeah, oh yes, Deste. Um, that's just ridiculous. That 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 was whole thing was created just to to show wealth and power and might, and it's mm. just um, he diverted a whole river to go mm. through his garden, so he had well. the water. And, <laughs> oh, as and you do, it <laughs> didn't matter if the townspeople had no water supply. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> but I mean, that's just crazy. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's set on terraces, and every terrace has got more waterfalls and more mm. ornate. You know, really over the top, crazy. It's like stuff. a whole small town. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. Well, I've always said to people though, if you're going to garden, well, do it with conviction. So there's obviously somebody that did <laughs> and had the money to back it up. Oh yes, oh yes. But um, one of the things that that um, I, I, John Patrick was our tour leader, and um, and John was discussing, and it was so noticeable everywhere. They've got a serious weed problem in Italy mm. um, really? with Rabinia. Oh. Rabinia oh, yeah. is just, it's gone crazy. You'd mm. see whole hillsides just white in flower mm. with the Rabinia, and it's just. Well, it's happening in France too. Yeah. You know, parts it? of Normandy and things, it, it, you know, you sort of look over in what looks like natural forest, mm. and then you see all the Rabinia through it. Mm. Um, uh, it's it's becoming a serious pest in lots of parts of Europe, so it doesn't surprise me that well, it's Well, they've just got no way of eradicating it, mm. and it's just taking over all their forests. It's Especially quite when it's ridiculous. mixed in with other yeah. trees. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. To get rid of. That's 
That's mm. right. Mm. So um, so they do have a serious problem there, and, and I'm not surprised <laughs> that it's spread to oh, um, yeah, yeah. France. Yeah, in fact, when I was, I think I was in the last trip to France, I did, uh, we were in Paris, and um, uh, we've made a friend of the director of the herbarium at the Jardin des Plantes, and um, uh, he was showing us around, and he showed us, it was actually two suckers, but he showed us the remnants of the very first Rabinia that came into Europe is growing in the Jardin de Plantes. Uh, uh, the original tree had collapsed uh, and rotted away, but it had suckers that had come up, yeah. uh, and it was apparently the first tree that, uh, of its type that came into France. And I can't remember what the date was, but it was very early because, mm. of course, the French mm. went into North America fairly early on in the piece, yeah. and so the Rabinia found its way back into Europe fairly early. So the, the original importer thereof was one of the famous French um, uh, naturalists, and I can't remember which one, but he probably wouldn't – he'd be a bit like sort of saying, oh, you know, who was it that brought blackberries into Australia? You know, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. same sense, I think, by now. Yeah, um, mm. You know, you think you're doing the right thing at the time, but yeah, uh, mm. looking back with hindsight, mm. what an awful thing to have done. Mm. Mm. Dreadful. Um, uh, just, just, just a couple of gardens I'll quickly mention. Oh, yeah. Um, a lovely one up on Lake Como, which um, most people, if they've watched any sort of um, Italian movies, would recognise instantly, mm-hmm. um, just set right on a hill. And it was actually owned by um, an explorer mm-hmm. um, who was part of the first um, exploration team, Italian exploration team, to... to uh, Go and uh, conquer Mount Everest. Ah, yes. Um, and so, and so, one of the rooms in the house was just full of all his expeditions. You know, photos, uh, the mm. sleds. You know, and he went right through husky there as dogs. Well, yeah, so but but fantastic. he didn't just do Mount Everest. Mm. He he explored. He went all over the place having adventures, but at the same time managed to create this absolutely classic. Italian garden, mm. which was just stunning because it was right on the shores of Lake Como. You look down, very steep rocky cliff onto the lake. And, mm. uh, and of course, up around that area, around Lake Como, Lake, um, Lake uh, Maggiore, you've also got the backdrop of all the snow-capped Alps. So mm. just... Yeah, it must be hard to oh. create an aesthetically pleasing garden in a place <laughs> like that. You know, this <laughs> borrowed landscape, you don't have to do a thing and it's all there ready yeah. for you, oh, which is goodness stunning. Me. Oh, goodness um, well. we did see We did see three gardens, actually, that um, had been designed by uh, Russell Page. Russell oh, Page yes. is mm. a, an English garden designer, mm. was, um, which was really interesting. Um because um, uh, although he created um, a designed uh, an ornate section, um, you know, with, with your box hedging mm. and all the rest of it, your, your classic Italian ornate garden, he'd only do that near the house and then he'd spent a lot of time creating English park gardens. Mm. And the first thing he did um, in each case was look at the trees that were on the properties and try and keep those and add to them. So he planted trees before he planted anything else to really sit each house in its environment yeah, and make each one unique. And, and as, mm. as, as a result of that, the park gardens were just stunning. And he also had a habit of planting three trees together. Mm. Didn't matter how mm. big they were, he would put three together. Mm. So we had three huge American redwoods, for instance, together oh, in this little cluster, you know, but it, it was stunning. It created... Actually, that, that raises effect. an issue. When people mm. talk about tree spacing, mm. they seem mm. to get really quite worried 
about how far apart yes, a tree has to apart. be. But he didn't. He put them close and mm. let them work it out. Yeah. But it created, instead of, instead of having a gap, you know, between each tree with it looking artificial, mm. you had what extended to, from a distance, looked like one huge tree. Mm. Um, but it was really the three set in yeah. triangular sort of... I mean, in nature, and trees do that. It mm. worked. Yeah. Uh, so when people ask me how far apart they can plant trees, especially if they're trees of the same species, because they're going to compete quite happily together. Mm. Mm. Whereas if you, I guess if you plant American sequoia and you put a Japanese maple right next to it, <laughs> there's going to be problems. Um, Arguments. Yes, there will be arguments and I know what to win. Um, but if you are planting the same species, you know, it doesn't have to just be a copse of birches. You can have a copse of mm, almost any tree mm, you want. Mm, yes. There's no real reason Fruit why not. trees or, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah the same thing. Yeah. Well, that's what he did. So he formed these copses the of, and, and, and huge variety of trees he incorporated into mm. each garden. He wasn't concerned with just they should be Italian species oh, yeah. or anything else. He borrowed from all over the world and picked the very best of, of the trees from mm. all over the world. Any, any uh, eucalypts out of interest? Did he put eucalypts we, in there? Yes, gardens? he did. Yeah. He mm. actually mm. used eucalypts as well. Mm. Mm. Yes. Mm. Not very often, but they were definitely mm. there. Mm. Yeah. So mm. there so you there go. there you go, from yep. all over the world. Yep, yep. Mm. Fantastic. Um, one last one I'll quickly mention um, is a garden at Ninfa. Mm. It's called Ninfa. Mm. It was actually an old medieval town that um, got completely destroyed during one of the wars. Um, and then... Uh, the powers that be decided they were going to turn it into a garden over all the ruins walls and oh. and mm. so you've got all these parts of castle walls and 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 city I've walls I've seen pictures and I have to say it looks very romantic and beautiful Well some people have actually credited it with being the most romantic garden in the world and it I have to say as soon as you walk into it, the atmosphere is just stunning. Mm. It there's the streams. They they had a they they um, diverted a stream, a natural stream, from up in the in the hill behind, and they've got that without any pump use or yeah. anything. Just just using trickling through, trickling yeah. through. Um, but the most stunning setting. Uh, no like house, a, like no a memorial. house. And so where do the, yes. the people, the, the, so the people relocated somewhere else or Yes, yes. The, so the township never never got rebuilt mm. at all. Mm. They they all relocated to mm. different parts. Mm. And and so it's just this living garden memorial. Something good coming out of something yeah. bad, I guess. It is absolutely mm. stunning. I mm. mean, you just you just walk from one vista to the next with mm. all these streams trickling through. Yeah, it's I, just From what beautiful. I can remember from photos and things, there's sort of wonderful old roses dripping over walls. Oh, there are. And, yeah, all that sort there of thing. Are. You know? It's mm. just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it's so good. It's just... Yes. So did you get all romantic <gasps> about it? Yeah. <laughs> you want to see Has Cordell survived? <laughs> uh, oh, but dear. Um, the other thing I will quickly mention is um, the Italian Cypress, of course. Um, you know, when you go through through um, through some of the areas of Italy, like Tuscany, um, mm. the Italian Cypress are everywhere. Um, and, and also uh, your umbrella pines, of yeah. course. So it's got that real mm. feel of, of Tuscany to it. But um, the Italian cypress um, are held uh, in great respect there because, um, firstly, on, on, the, on the estates, they tend to plant one for each member of the family mm. um, when, when they're when born. They're born. Mm. Um, but they also, all the, all, the, um, all the burial sites are totally surrounded with with these um, 
uh, Italian Cyprus as well because it's supposed to be the link between earth and heaven. Nice. Pointing oh. the, the, and it's supposed to free the soul <laughs> to help them ascend. Uh, hmm. So, so very special place in, in Italian, mm. you know, hearts, these mm. these. Gorgeous, gorgeous. So that's why there's a lot of Italian cypresses in Altona. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, but really stunning effect, mm. of course. Yes, and so you'd see, um, you'd see whole driveways just lined with them, you know, mm. and it's quite ridiculous, but really gorgeous. Yeah, anyway. oh, fantastic. So yeah, all in all, a good trip. Fantastic. If well, anyone gets you, the opportunity, it would be a real sad state of affairs if it was a bad trip. Yeah. <laughs> it would, wouldn't it? Yeah, yes, I think so. Yes, it has to be a good trip. So, uh, having having mentioned my trip, both of you are heading off. Yeah. Well, next week I'm off for it's that type of year. A few weeks. Well, it's nice to get away in the, in the winter. Mm, it sort mm. of breaks the winter up a bit. It so does. You don't feel like it's quite so long and dreary. Um, yeah. So next week I'm on a plane and off to New Caledonia for three or four weeks. Um, We've got a car hired, uh, and we're just going to drive around New Caledonia and walk up the hills to look at Oricarias and Agathus, and I'm going to try and find the world's only parasitic conifer. That's my big plan while I'm there. Wow. There, there is a conifer that grows up nowhere else in the world Never but New Caledonia, and most mm. people haven't. Mm. And understandably, in a way, because it's this funny little scruffy thing that grows in dense forests. It's parasitic to the roots of another rare conifer, so it's in a bit of a... In Double rare. Echo. Yeah, it's, well, it's in an environmental dead end, I think. Yeah. Um, and it has no chlorophyll whatsoever. No, I won't tell it when I find one. Um, and so it lives in these really, really dark understories, like a toadstool would. No chlorophyll. Uh, no chlorophyll at all. Uh, conjuring up a pretty weird plant. Well, it has, uh, it's sort of dark chocolatey brown. Wow. Uh, and it's, it's a sort of a cypressy-looking foliage. Mm. Uh, it's called Parasitaxis. Um, mm. And, yeah, so the world's only parasitic conifer. So when, it, when I travel overseas, I do try and have an iconic plant I want to try and find. <laughs> and although I'm looking forward to seeing the cowries and the agathus and, or the oricarias and things as well, because New Caledonia has a remarkable conifer uh, flora, mm. um, the Parasitaxis is sort of as much as it's probably not visually the most exciting plant growing in um, New Caledonia, it is a, an iconic thing I want to see. And when we were in Paris last time at, at the herbarium um, at the Jardin de Plantes, I saw the type specimen in the herbarium of mm. Parasitaxis. Okay. This scruffy little piece of wood with a few little bit, needly bits <laughs> left on it in the herbarium in um, in Paris. So I actually Jeez. saw the original you type got ready specimen. for it. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah I'm, all, I'm all keyed up now. Uh, and I've been given sort of the lowdown on what parts of New Caledonia I'm likely to be able to find it in mm. um, so I'll be able to tell everybody when I get back at what sort of success I had in finding the world's only parasitic conifer so I think following, that's pretty exciting following stuff. the paths of the original plant explorers yeah well exactly <laughs> there's, there's not that much of that goes on anymore so it's yeah. quite exciting yeah mm. so who knows you know yeah. uh, I've always had this idea that one day I'll find this really weird plant somewhere that nobody else has actually found that would be good that would be exciting yeah <laughs> but I think New Caledonia has been fairly well botanized so Chances are if I found something new, it would be some scruffy little grass that nobody had ever, <laughs> ever taken any notice of anyway. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's what I'm doing for the next few weeks. Okay. So I'm really looking forward to it. It should be good fun. should be great fun. Yeah. And, Karen, you're heading off too. Uh, yeah, I'm heading off for um, – oh, 
a bit of a tick list. Actually, I'll have to ask. I was remembering last night. Oh, I still haven't asked Stephen about where to go in Crete. Ah. So first, first of all, Switzerland for wandering around the wildflowers for my niece's wedding in the mountains. So that would be really nice. Wonderful. And, you know, I'm remembering the cat from last time I was there in summer, the cows sort of wandering through this knee-deep grass filled with flowers and yeah. looking contented and jangling their little bells and things. So all that sort Have of you stuff. got all your Sound of Music numbers in yeah. ready to go? You Actually. Know, for some twirling up in the mountains. What a great idea. She wants me to sing a song at her wedding. That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think something from Sound of Music. Absolutely Finally, perfect. I've been trying to think of something. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't do Edelweiss. No, you know? no, no, I think no, that's no. a bit cliched. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 but yeah, we, we we did a few twirls and a few numbers when we were up in the French Alps. You know, you can't help yourself. Uh, so lots, lots of lovely wildflowers, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, a bit of a mountainy trip, actually, because then to Crete. Mm. So hoping to go to visit. Actually, there's a lovely website I've been on called, um, I've been looking at called Wild Herbs of Crete. And they've mm. got beautiful descriptions of the herbs that they harvest very sustainably and in the wild, mm. and they do things like they'll, if they're harvesting from a plant, they'll just clip just a little bit from it and clear around it and pull the weeds away so that next time they come back in a year's time, it's growing more healthily and very respectful with their wild harvesting. Yeah. And then they distill oils yeah. in these gorgeous old-looking things that they've got on their, you know, quite a story on their website. Actually, their mountain tea is very good. When you get to oh, Crete, uh, yes, it's a yes, species yes. of flomus, I think. Oh, okay. Use, okay. And it, I've, it's it. a really nice mm, tea. Mm, and, of course, if you're there at the right time when they're collecting uh, wild greens. Uh, like the horta. Yes, the horta. <laughs> uh, is, yeah. Apologies to all the Greek people. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yes. we're probably mucking up everything here. But, but their, their wild greens are fantastic. I just mm. avoid the snails. Oh, you, meant, you did mention that. Yeah, yes. It, it, uh, I, I don't want to offend any, any Cretans out there, but the, the snails they collect and cook, they don't put them in any garlic butter like the French do, and they're like bits of rubber band and they're disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> we tried them, but, yeah, I wouldn't recommend them. And But they're generous with them to make it even worse. <laughs> so you get this bu- this plate with this sort of pyramid of snail shells sitting on it, and you've got to go through and pick them all out. I'll have to learn the, the, Cre- the Greek word for snails and make sure I avoid that. Yeah, yeah, I'd avoid that on the menus. Um, but... But the food in general is fantastic. Mm, looking forward to seafood. Oh, the, the ta- tavernas all around the coast with all the mm, wonderful mm. seafoods. And mm. it is just fabulous. We just loved Crete. Mm. And if you can get up into the hills, um, yes, I would definitely recommend... The White Mountains or something. Yeah, mm. well, anywhere through the White Mountains is really <laughs> good. Mount Silurides, which is the highest mountain in Crete. Uh, I walk up the side of that at the right time of the year. There'll be crocuses. There'll be tulips. Mm. Uh, there'll be arums. Um, uh, all sorts of fabulous wildflowers. Mm. Uh, and, of course, a down the Samaran Gorge is mm, well worth doing, mm, yeah, uh, and lots of good wildflowers there as well. But look, anywhere you you go in Crete, it's it's covered in wild thyme, and that's what oh. I'm seeing. And I've been growing some of these, which I still have to give you a plant of thyme yeah. capitata. Yeah. So all these lovely pictures I've seen in this website, and I thought I have to go and see where they are springing oh. from the rocks and hanging yeah. out the edges of cliffs. And of course, and... you've got to go and visit Oreganum dictamnus as well. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, one of the classical Cretian plants. Yes, it's it's yeah, a fabulous yeah. little thing, I love and it. of course. It's supposed to fix everything. Well, good. I, I might have <laughs> yeah. to bring back a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, it's supposed to be one of those sort of panaceas uh, of good health. Uh, right. so oh, well, it, I've been growing it. Maybe I haven't been drinking enough. Maybe that's what Yeah, that's, that could be it, Karen. <laughs> I don't know. But, yeah, so Crete will be fantastic. I love mm. it. It's a great, I, I would like to be the Consul General for Crete from Australia, I think. You know, that would be good. Oh, like, what a good idea. Yeah, or the, or the cultural <laughs> attaché or something, you know, something with a title. What about the herbal advisor or yeah, something? The, yeah, 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 they probably don't need me for that. I think they're doing quite well on their own. Yeah. But, yeah, wonderful. So that, that'll be a good mm. trip. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. Mm. Okay. 
It's time I got to a few time? community oh. announcements, I think. More than time. Oh, here we go. Yes. We're going to do a lot of herby <laughs> double entendres here today. Oh, dear. Okay. Firstly, um, Villa Alba is open again today, um, starting at 1 o'clock, open through till 4 o'clock. Now, they're currently out of Villa Alba. They're currently in the middle of um, an exciting exercise of filming there for an ABC six-part miniseries. So it's called um, The Beautiful Lie. It's based on the Anna Karenina story. Um, so visitors may like to uh, go along and have a look at the property that uh, they're going to see in the series yeah, later. Fantastic. Yeah, which would be a bit of fun. But anyway, the house and the garden is open today. Um, Villa Alba is at 44 Walmer Street in Kew. Melway's reference there is 44H6. Admission is $10, concession of $8, children are free and afternoon tea is available with a $3 donation. Now also uh, our good friends out at Karanga Native Nursery have got their um, big winter plant sale on. Uh, so this is running from yesterday right through until Sunday the 14th of June. So that gives you a bit of time to head out there. They've got a huge range on offer from ground covers, small shrubs, medium and large shrubs and trees, grasses, you name it. So uh, uh, Karanga, of course, is at 118 York Road in Mount Evelyn and their phone number there is 9760-8100. They're open seven days, Monday to Sunday, 8.30 till 5. Uh, public holidays, which will apply, of course, to tomorrow, 8.30 till 5 again. So... Uh, Make the most of that one if you'd like mm. to go up and uh, and grab some bargains. Uh, now, also, Diana and Graham are running some rose pruning demonstrations up at Silky's Rose Farm in Clombinane. These are happening tomorrow, uh, one at 10 o'clock a.m., that is, and one at two in the afternoon. Uh, bring pruning equipment for assessment and sharpening. <laughs> now, the cost is $15 per person, and that... Uh, will go to the Clombinane CFA. Uh, they'll also uh, be providing a cup of tea in the garden. If you're interested in going along to one of those, you do need to book. Their phone number is 57871123. That's 57871123. And uh, just two more I should mention. Firstly... Um, <clears throat> The Friends of the Royal Botanic Gardens in Cranbourne are presenting a talk uh, entitled Celia Rossa in the Field. It's a talk by Carolyn Landon, who's author of a very recently published book called uh, Banksia Lady, Celia Rossa, Botanical Artist. Now, uh, Carolyn has written several award-winning mem memoirs, uh, biographies, photo focusing on ordinary people whose lives define and are defined by the times in which they live. So she'll be talking about Celia's experiences in the field, the botanists, naturalists and artists that she worked with, and it's planned that Celia Rossa will be in attendance for the afternoon. Oh, so that would be great. That would be terrific. Now, this is happening on Sunday, 21st of June, 2 p.m. in the afternoon at the Australian Garden Auditorium down at Royal Botanic Gardens in Cranbourne. Cost uh, for friends of uh, Cranbourne uh, members, $15. For non-members, 
$20. So uh, that would be an excellent talk to attend. Um, now, bookings are essential and numbers are limited. So a booking form is available by ringing 8774 2483, that's 8774 2483, or you can email R.G. Elliot, we know who that is. Yeah, I wonder op- who that is, yes. <laughs> at optusnet.com.au. Fantastic. Yes, brilliant. Yes, yes Celia's, Celia's paintings are just amazing. Mm. I mean, amazing. there was an article, was it in yesterday's age or the week before on, on the Saturday's age, there was an article about Celia. Okay. Um, mm. And some people uh, compared her to Redoute and, you know, oh. the world's most wow. famous flower painters. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, so she's right up there. Speaking of which, somebody who's not quite right up there, but Craig, yes. my partner, has an exhibition on this weekend, if anybody's out and about. Ah. Uh, it's part of the Wood End Winter Art Festival, uh, and it's in the Black Anther Gallery in Wood End. Uh, and it's a solo exhibition of Craig's work. So if anybody happens to be heading sort of out along the Calder Highway um, and would like to stop into Wood End to have a look at something, uh, I think it's open from 9.30 to 4.30 or 5, something like that, okay. both today and tomorrow. Terrific. Uh, and, of course, it was open yesterday as well. And, uh, yes, he's got a quite a lot of work out there. So if anybody's interested, they could perhaps go to the Black Anther Gallery in, in Wood End. Wonderful. And have a look around. Wood End's a, a lovely place in there. We were at a, a, a lovely um, uh, church recital at St Ambrose Church in Wood End last night as part of the Wood End Winter Art Festival. And they have mm. wonderful sort of chamber orchestras and all sorts of stuff going on. Exhibitions of pottery. That, uh, and this happens every year in Wood End and uh, it's become quite an institution. <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, well, it gives you something to think about other than the cold when you live in <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's happening today and tomorrow if anybody happens to be going that way. So, Fantastic. Yeah, they could call into the nursery on the way up. It's not that far off the highway. Of course they could. <laughs> <laughs> Make a trip of it. Yeah. Okay, it is more than time that we invited our listeners to join us. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning, we've got Stephen Ryan and Karen Sutherland in the studio. Do give us a call. The number is 9419 Double five. That's nine four one nine zero one double five to speak to the team. Or this morning we have Anne on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Anne, nine four one nine eight three double seven. Stephen, let's start with what you've brought in. All right. Well, we'll start with twigs. Uh, twigs. Twigs, yes. Uh, this time of the year, you've got twigs to Twigs are your... really, really yeah. interesting, aren't <laughs> yeah. they? Yeah, well, look, apart from anything else, they're good kindling. Yes. Um, this time of the year, I like coloured stems in the garden. Mm. It's something that you don't pay much attention to the rest of the year, um, but when there's fewer flowers around, coloured stems can sort of come into their own. And there's lots of plants that have attractive twigs. And I've got two different groups of plants here. Uh, quite unrelated, but have uh, wonderful coloured stems. And the first ones are a couple of the coloured stem dogwoods. Mm. Now, the stemmy dogwoods are not grown for their flowers and things as the tree dogwoods are. Uh, They're grown basically for their coloured twigs, and they're also quite good in their autumn colour stakes as well. They're shrubs, they're not trees, and you need to get into the habit of coppicing. Um, Mm. A lot of coloured twigs are only pretty when they're in their first or second season. Uh, When they get into the third or fourth season, the bark gets old, it turns grey. So you've got to encourage them to have young wood all the time. So what you do with these is just as they're coming into their pretty little bright green new leaves in the spring, you whack them off at ground level. 
spring. In spring. Mm. Well, you don't want to lose the stems oh, yes, for that current yeah, winter, yeah, you see. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you yeah, could prune yeah. them down in the winter, but mm. then you're, you're losing the point of the plant. Mm. So you wait until they're about to shoot in the spring and then you chop them off at ground level. I generally do it every second winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get these lovely canes that come up, and in the first year they're just single canes. They have no side branches, so they look like these fabulous fishing rods just standing up in the garden. Mm-hmm. And there's two basic varieties available here. There are others overseas, but there's two varieties basically available here. There's Cornus alba siberica, which is the red stem dogwood, and alba means white, but that's to do with its berries because its stems are, in mm-hmm. fact, uh, a dark red, uh, and its autumn colour is rich burgundy. Mm. I was so, going to ask her the colours of the leaves. Do they match the stems? Yes, they do, in mm. fact. Mm. And the other one is the yellow stem dogwood, Cornus um, cericea flaviromia. <laughs> got wonderful names. Uh, if you can say them really easily without stumbling over them, you get to be president of the garden club, apparently. <laughs> um, and the yellow stem one has bright yellow autumn foliage. Mm. And they look fabulous planted together. Yes, mm. they would. You know, so keeping in mind that the yellow one tends not to be quite as big growing or vigorous as the red one. So if you're planting them together, you need to keep that in mind so that you know you sort of plant them appropriately so that from the side you're viewing them you can see them properly yes um and they're fairly easy to grow they're quite hardy but they do like a rich soil because if they're going to grow up to a couple of meters tall in the one growing season and that's what you want them to do then they need to have a good rich soil and they like Mm -hmm. lots of moisture uh, in fact, they're very good on the side of dams or ponds, uh, and that's the sort of place they grow in the wild. They grow on the sides of streams and things, and they have these very willowy stems so that if the stream floods, they just get pushed over to the ground, and once the water level goes down, they just pop back up again. So they're a very useful plant for sort of habitat edges to dams and things like that. Uh, don't think it's a good idea if you've got cows in the paddock because I think they'll eat them. Um, <laughs> but you know, if you're trying to create a nice sort of visual habitat around an ornamental lake or dam, yes. uh, then these coloured stem dogwoods could well be worth That'd considering. Be They're completely cold hardy. I mean, they, uh, well, the name Siberica in one of them sort of might <laughs> give it away. Um, uh but they do like it damp, uh, and they'll tolerate a reasonable amount of heat in the summer as long as their roots are moist. Um, and I think they're great shrubs. Mm. So you get really good autumn foliage. In the second year that you didn't prune them down, they will flower, but they get little tiny white flowers in clusters followed by little white berries, neither of which are overly important. Right. I mean, they're pretty enough, but you know, from a distance yeah. you wouldn't even notice them, so they're, they're not really why you plant them. So that's the one group. And the other group I brought along are some ornamental relatives of the raspberry. I guess, uh, rubuses. Uh, and I've got two different ones here. We've got the ghost bramble. That's very um, unusual. Uh, Rubus cockburnianus, which has lovely ghostly white stems in the mm. winter. It also has greyish foliage, and it grows like a thicket of raspberries. You get the stems that come up and then they arch over, and so you end up with this sort of thicket of them. Mm. Uh, like floristry. Oh, except mm. that it is prickly, so you've got mm. to, just got to be a bit mm. careful how you use it. Otherwise, But but then people use roses in yeah, floristry. Exactly. So, yeah, so what am I saying? Yes, yeah. of course it would be perfect. Um, <laughs> And in fact, I always call roses rich man's blackberries. So now I've got some <laughs> poor man's roses today. Um, and Rubus cockburnianus, uh, you, again, you treat it like you do the um, the dogwoods. It's only the younger canes that have the lovely white mm. bloom on them. Mm. So at the end of winter, you go through and cut them down, uh, and then you set. They send up these lovely fresh canes again for the next year. Uh, 
Just one point of warning, like most things in the Rubus family, if it's a sort of an archy, caney one, they don't sucker madly across a garden bed, but if the canes come over and hit the ground mm. again, mm. they will They'll take re- root, yes. uh, just like a wild blackberry would take mm. root. Yes. Uh, so they need to be managed just a little bit, mm. but just the most wonderful ghostly white stems in the winter. And the really interesting thing about them is the thorns go the other way on this. The thorns actually poke upwards. which you don't normally see on anything. Most things have thorns that curve Mm, back. That is really odd. But it sort of makes logical sense. I've never been able to quite work out why things would have thorns that curl in because generally speaking you can put your hand into those but you don't get it back. This is actually (laughs) trying to stop you getting in. Right. If that makes any sense. Mm. So, yes, so a ghost bramble, Rubus cockburnianus. And the other one I brought along is the Japanese wineberry. Uh, which goes under the wonderful name of Rubus Um uh, I love it when I can rattle them off. Sometimes I miss it, though. You, you, you just don't quite get it, and then I look silly. Um, trying to work out what the, um, what the botanical I don't know what Phanocolassius means. I must sort of do some yeah, research and see if I can work it out. Um, but the Japanese wineberry does get small, red, edible berries. Mm. I have to say it's sort of more interesting than potentially an important crop because the berries are quite small. Um, uh, they have a flavour, you know, they, they mm, taste mm. all right. But, you know, you'd have to pick an awful lot to make a meal and you don't mm, get mm. an awful lot off the plant. So mm. it's not a particularly productive plant. Um, but it has quite pretty little pink flowers, mm. uh, followed by the little red berries. And in the winter, it has bristly red stems. Um, and again, its stems come up and arch over. It will take root if it hits the ground. Yep. But if you keep it from hitting the ground, and by pruning them off every end of winter, it also stops them becoming old and hitting the ground as a rule. So you get rid of the stems mm. every year, and then they send up fresh stems. If you do that, though, you're less likely to get flowers and fruit. I'm feeling very Christmassy looking at these. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, I feel it, like I want to make a Christmas um, Yeah, it is yeah. almost like that, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, look, I just think that there's groups of plants out there that we're not using in our gardens that sometimes have a reputation because of the fact that they're related to some weedy species. But then people still will plant raspberries and mm-hmm. they'll still plant mm-hmm. boysenberries and youngberries mm-hmm. and That's all right. those other berries uh, without thinking about the relationship to blackberries and other weedy species. So there's no reason why some of these more ornamental ones which haven't thus far shown any particular weediness, um, that why they shouldn't be grown. Mm. I mean, they're, they're really lovely plants, and, mm. and I love them in my winter garden. So, yep. so there's a couple of twigs uh, of note. <laughs> <laughs> Just to note, those dogwoods, uh, mm. I'm not sure exactly which ones, but I'm pretty sure my oh, – now I'm showing my ignorance about what all, some of the plants my mum has in her garden, but she's up northeast of Shepparton, yeah. so very hot and dry. Admittedly, she's built shelter banks of trees around her mm. garden to, you know, to give that microclimate that works for a lot more plants. But she has dogwoods in her garden. Yeah. Okay, she has irrigation. Yeah. But it just shows you that even in those, in, that's very different situation oh, yes. in your garden. Mm, they're, yeah. they're doing quite well there. Yeah. Oh, I don't yeah, know if she's can. pretty them enough. I'm going to have to mention that to her. Oh yes, yes. You, you need to be vicious. <laughs> I was listening very carefully, yeah. thinking, you right, need, Mum, yeah, there's yeah, going to be yeah. some harsh pruning of your yeah. dogwoods. Yeah. End of winter, you go up with your with your pruners and, and help her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for a pruning day at Mum's. Very happy when she sees her brain. Well, she has. She's having an open garden for her for a local hospital auxiliary in October. So, all right. Um, well, if she cuts them would... down in August, yes. they should be well and truly. You know, they won't be fully full height yet, but they'll be better they, color. Yeah, they'll have better color yes, and yeah. and and Excellent. they'll look vigorous and young. That's Excellent. the other thing when you when you prune something. We all want to look vigorous and young. Yeah, oh, we're <laughs> The unfortunate thing is when we're getting less vigorous and less young as the days go past. Uh, but you can revigorate a plant, unlike a person. You know? So and and look, I think coppicing and pollarding are, are techniques of gardening that 
are quite mm. popular and common in Europe, but we don't use them here much. We don't. I wish we not use nearly them. enough. Eucalypts. I don't think. I think we. I, I mean, it's so lovely to see a lot more eucalypts. Yeah, looked yeah. If you're way. coppicing and pollarding eucalypts and keeping them in the in those they beautiful so silvery um, juvenile growth, I mean, Gorgeous. there's just there's so many useful techniques uh, in the way of pruning out there that we just don't utilize. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, I've got a, a, an Indian bean tree in the garden at home, the gold leafed one, uh, and. I guess it's pollarded more than it's coppiced because I do keep it up on a small trunk. But it sends up sort of eight-foot stems every oh, year. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm yeah, thinking, ca- hang on a minute, what's that? Yeah, yeah yes, yeah, the yeah. catalpa. Mm. And oh, okay. I cut it back every year to a stump about a metre and a half high. Mm. And every year it sends up about eight-foot stems or two, three-metre stems with the hugest leaves, these mm. great big soft yellowy-green leaves mm. on it. And it's in my what I rather grandiosely call the yellow and blue border. Um, and I want it to be in the border. I don't want it to be above shading mm, the border. Mm. And I don't care about the flowers. The flowers of the catalpa wouldn't be an asset in that colour combination anyway. But the golden yellow leaves of it are fantastic. And I've got mm. blue salvias around it and all that mm. sort of thing. And I do that every year. Now, that tree has been pollarded now for 10 maybe 12 years, Mm -hmm. and every year it takes me five minutes every winter just to go through and snip, snip, snip back to just stubs Mm. of growth. Mm. And, in fact, last year I cut it back into the old plant because it was getting rather twiggy and woody looking where I'd been cutting it back almost to the one Mm. spot. Mm. So I cut it down lower, uh, and it had sent up even stronger shoots (laughs) this year. So it was was about 10 or 12 feet in the old measurements this year. It just went skyrocketing up. It looked fantastic. They're such beautiful leaves. They're so oh. tropical looking. Yeah. Right? Yes. Well, that's the thing Amazing. I love. I mean, I live in less than tropical Macedon, yeah. so it's sometimes <laughs> nice to pretend that you could put on the leopard skin lap lap and go swimming <laughs> through the trees. Uh, there's a visual you probably don't need. Um, but, you know, that's what I do. You know, I like to have this sort of tropical look in the garden. I thought you meant that's what you do. Yes, no, you do no, oh, no, look, that's I, not what he does. No, no, I, I don't want to scare the neighbours. <laughs> they think I'm weird enough as this. You know, we, we don't need to really frighten them. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, so yeah, so coppicing and pollarding, which was something I wasn't going to talk about this morning necessarily, but I think it's a really... Great garden. It is. It is. You know, and it's it's mm. straightforward and simple. I mean, in most cases, you just cut back and leave a stub of the current season's growth so that mm, it's got something mm, to mm. shoot from again. Um, We're not even taught that. In, I'm going back to trade school when I was at trade yeah. school. And in for gardening apprenticeship and then even at Burnley, I don't really think we were taught very much. It wasn't really emphasised. No, I, look, it wouldn't be because it's just not an understood no. technique here. Yes, uh, no. But, you know, anywhere you go in France particularly, I mean, they manipulate oh, everything. Yes. You yes. know, everything yeah, has yeah. to be, you know, sort of kept in line. Yeah, um, <laughs> and Man um, controls nature. Yeah, well, that's how the French garden <laughs> sort of right. evolved, you know. It was to show your dominion over nature. Yes. Um, but, yeah, look, there's all these techniques that we just don't make use And Mm. you mentioned the eucalypts. I mean, there's a lot of our native plants that we could, in fact, utilize these techniques. That's right. After a few years. And look, there'd be certain wattles that it would work with. That's what you start to wonder, don't you? Or even some of the new um, copper tea tree growth or some of the smaller tea trees that you can keep smaller rather than letting them get up bigger. Mm. And, you know, a lot of our natives do grow scruffy with old age. So if you can keep them young and and Mm. vigorous looking, Mm. uh, particularly if they're ones that you're growing for their foliage or growth or whatever, because coppicing and pollarding does tend to have an impact on flowering uh, because you're (laughs) tending to put things into more growth. Mm. But it is about that. That's what you're doing it for. Mm. And uh, so, you know, people have got their head around dispelia, so I can't understand why they can't. Mm, uh, that's people far more complex 
than than pollarding and coppicing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I use it all the time. I think it's a really good technique mm-hmm. of, you know, and it means you can grow some things in your garden that you ordinarily wouldn't consider because you're controlling them. Mm-hmm. You know, I could I could envisage planting a southern blue gum in a suburban garden mm-hmm. and coppicing or pollarding it mm-hmm. uh, to encourage that vigorous young growth instead of ending up with a 200-foot towering tree. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which yes. reminds me, how's your cloud pruning coming along? Oh, quite good. My olive trees are looking quite reasonable with their little puffy, cloudy tops. Uh, oh, I'm uh, understanding what you're saying. Yeah, yeah and, and, you know, that's another technique that you see, well, it sort of started, I guess, in Japan and, and China with mm-hmm. their sort of aesthetic of gardening. But, you know, you, you, there's not a chateau worth its salt in France these days that hasn't got some cloud pruning in <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and it seems to be a technique that's showing up everywhere. And, and that's fun because you can let your own artistic temperament come out and, you know, because each cloud pruning plant is going to be a unique individual generally mm. uh, so you, you know you can make things do what you want and I've got two olive trees growing where it would be completely inappropriate if I let them just go uh, and I'm not madly worried as to whether I get olives or not uh, although I probably will nonetheless but yeah they're all being sort of cloud pruned and, mm, and oh, that's fun mm. I enjoy doing that I mean gardening isn't about trying to emulate nature in lots of ways it's mm. creating an environment in which you plants will thrive and grow that suits you and sometimes it can have a naturalistic Mm. look Mm. uh, but other times it'll be quite formal and and, and controlled uh, and either way are perfectly legitimate gardens Uh, Mm. but very few people could say that they're actually creating a proper natural garden because if if you're letting nature take its course Nature can often be quite scruffy. (laughs) So, yeah, so you you really do need to take control in gardens. And, yeah, secateurs are one of the best ways. Exactly. Mm. Okay. We've got a question uh, from the outside line. Bert of Churnside Park wants to know if now is the right time to take hardwood cuttings from rhododendrons and also which month for semi-hardwood cuttings. Well, I wouldn't do rhododendrons from hardwood cuttings. Uh, rhododendrons are very much better from, in fact, semi-hardwood cuttings that you'd take around about Christmas, January. Mm. Uh, if you take hardwood cuttings off rhododendrons now, even with bottom heat and, and, and hormonal treatments and things, they could take, if they're going to strike at all, they could take two years. Whereas if you take, yeah, so they'll, they'll just, you know, they'll just, they'll just sit there. Mm. But if you can take your cuttings off rhododendrons in the, in the sort of, Christmas to sort of end of January is generally the the sort of crucial time. The wood will be firm but not hard. Uh, that would be the time to do it, and that's when most semi hardwood cuttings, in fact. So that answers the sort of that other, answers the other one, the yep. other part of the question yep. quite neatly. Yep. Um, most things from semi hardwood cuttings would be Christmas to end of January. Yep. Uh, softwood cuttings would be earlier again, and there's certain plants that strike better from softwood cuttings. Funnily enough, in the rhododendron family, if you're going to try Molossus for instance, like the deciduous rhododendron group, uh, they're better from very softwood cuttings. You need to take them as soft as possible, mm. but you do need to have a mist spray or fogging system because they just wilt. Mm. Uh, so they have to be kept permanently moist, mm. uh, but they won't strike even from semi-hardwood cuttings well. So, so they need to be done from soft cuttings. And generally speaking, hardwood cuttings are generally mainly deciduous things. Mm, that's so you'd normally do your, your hydrangeas, your, your deciduous shrubs like Forsythia, Wigilia. Grapes. Grapes, yeah, grapes yes. you do as hardwood cuttings in the winter. Uh, so generally speaking, hardwood cuttings tend to be more in, um, in deciduous plants. Yep. So that's how I would deal with that. Okay. 
Beautiful. So there you go. And yep. I, I guess just one point of warning with rhododendrons uh, from cuttings. Some rhododendrons are comparatively easy to strike. Some are virtually impossible. In fact, some are impossible to strike from cuttings. And if you're going to grow them at all, have to be grafted. So it will be a trial and error thing uh, with them. Mm-hmm. But you do tend to find that rhododendrons in the dark red forms and some of the yellows tend to be the harder ones to propagate. The mauves, pinks and whites are often easier to strike from cuttings, uh, but some of the, the other colours tend to be more more difficult to strike, if at all. Uh, and some rhododendrons have disappeared out of cultivation because the nurseries won't be bothered grafting anymore, so they're dis- mm. those ones that need to be grafted are disappearing, mm. if not already disappeared, right. unfortunately. Yes. So, yes, it's all about what's uh, an economic way of growing mm. plants, which is actually not a good thing. I would rather see some people still growing some of these things with the techniques required and just charge more for them mm-hmm. to cover your expense and well, cost. otherwise, again, you're losing your diversity. Here we are. go again, narrowing down, yeah. you know. Yes, yeah, so it'll be down to golden diosmas and James oh. Sterling ptosperms before we know it. It'll kill ourselves. <laughs> yes, yes, and, yes, and then we'll, yes, we'll, all, we'll all, yes, I don't know, we'll, we'll stand under a bunya waiting for a nut to hit us on the head or something appropriate. Uh, <laughs> Oh, dear. Okay, let's go to our first caller. We have uh, Julia, who's out in Canterbury. Good morning, Julia. Oh, good morning. Um, I had a question about potting up acacias. Yeah. I'm usually pretty gung-ho with seeds and things, but my five-year-old granddaughter brought some seeds home from school and sort of gazed up at me and said, would you grow these for me? (laughs) Oh, damn. Um, So I'm under pressure. Right. Um, They've come up. And I've potted them into sort of 10 centimetre yeah. pots, and they've been there for about, I don't know, six months maybe. Well, they're, I'd say they're well and truly ready for potting on. How tall would they be, Julie? Oh, look, they're not <sighs> 10 centimetres maybe. Yeah. Yeah, look, um, if, if they're I'm in 10 centimetre pots, uh, you don't want to check them, as in get them root bound or anything. So uh, you need to pot on things, particularly fast growing things like acacias and eucalypts and things. They need to be potted on fairly regularly. Okay, uh, there's not a lot of roots sort of bursting out the bottom, which is usually when I think I'm. Yeah, well, what I normally do, though, to be safe, because sometimes roots won't come out the bottom, but they'll wind around and around oh, inside, and then, mm-hmm. you know, and then it's far too late when you realise it. So I generally tip one upside down and just tap it on the end of a bench to pull the pot off the roots just to check periodically and if the roots have filled the pot and are holding the potting mix together nice and firmly then it's probably time to pot them on okay good thank you that's a pleasure all right bye bye so much fun raising seed (laughs) i love seeing those little things germinate it's great oh yeah it is good fun um just a reminder those phone numbers again we'd love to hear from you this morning nine four one nine zero one double five to speak to the team on air we've got Stephen ryan in and also karen sutherland uh but uh if you'd like to have a chat to ann on the outside line Nine four one nine eight three double seven. We are running through until nine fifteen as usual, but uh, you've always uh, got more guarantee if you jump on the phone early. Yes, yes. no, so, leave it to the last minute. Yeah, because otherwise we might have to say we can't take your call. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so uh, yes, nine four one nine zero one double five. Okay, Stephen, right. let's go to the. Well, I bought in a plant that's completely uh, unrelated to the twigs I was talking about before. Uh, and in fact, it's an Australian native shrub and some people might be surprised, but I do enjoy our native plants. It's just that I like plants from everywhere. Uh, 
And this one's a slightly obscure native plant, and it has actually come in here twice whilst you've been away, and we hadn't got round to talking about it. Oh, so, right. <laughs> so this is its third. A, yeah, this is its third attempt. And we, Isn't and we it got, lucky I'm back then? Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, uh, we we got carried away with all sorts of other stuff while you were away, and, and we didn't actually get round to our plants very often at all. Okay. Um, but that's fine too. Uh, but this plant is commonly known as the Tasmanian mountain laurel, uh, Anopterus glandulosa, and it's an evergreen shrub that visually, in some ways, seems to sit more happily amongst rhododendrons, azaleas, it and camellias. Like a or something, yeah, it, well, I, mean, I don't know it at all. Yeah, well, it's one of those plants. When I first found out about this plant, there was a big shrub of it growing in one of the gardens up on Mount Macedon, and the garden owner knew it as a mountain laurel, but of course. The North American mountain laurel is Kelmia, and I knew it wasn't a Kelmia, mm. uh, but he didn't have a botanical name. And I actually thought it was probably Ericaceus. I thought it was in the mm. sort of Pyrrhusy sort of mm. rhododendron group of plants. It turns out it's in the Escalonia group of plants. Oh. So it's in the Escalonaceae or whatever it's mm. called. Um, and um, it's an evergreen shrub. It has the same sort of growth pattern as rhodes and azaleas. It sends up one set of growth a year, then slows, stops, sets its flower buds for the next year, flowers, and then sends up the next set of growth. So it's not an overly quick-growing shrub. Being Tasmanian, it likes it moist, cool, all that sort of stuff. So the sort of aspect you'd think of for a Japonica camellia or a rhododendron or an azalea. Yep should fit, suit an opterus quite well. So acid-loving soil? Acid-loving soil, all that sort of thing. It's actually one of those classic examples of an Australian native shrub that goes against all of those supposed mm. wisdom <laughs> yes. things about natives, mm. yes. you know, being tough and hardy and drought tolerant and all those other things. <laughs> grey, uh, silvery. Yeah, grey, silvery foliage. <laughs> yes. all, all those things that we see as sort of signature Australian native mm. things. It's the, a myth buster. It <laughs> is a myth buster. Uh, but it's a charming shrub. And I brought it along today in part to talk about the serendipitous flowering of plants because this is normally spring blooming. Mm. Right. So mm. this will normally flower in sort of October-ish. Mm. Um, and, um, but regularly on radio here we get people that ring up and say, oh, it's autumn and my magnolia's in flower. What do I do? Yes. Mm. And, of course, we generally suggest they enjoy it because <laughs> <laughs> uh, plants will often flower serendipitously out of season and – and, yeah, they're just there to be enjoyed when they do it. It's a beautiful flower. It has. It's a lovely flower. You've got Isn't this it? sort of very shell-like little white uh, with a faint pink stain. There is actually a slightly pinker version of this as well. Um, it's in upright sprays. And it, if people do know what pyrrhuses and andromedas and those other lily-of-the-valley type shrubs look like, it's not dissimilar. It's got that sort of look about it. Uh, it's got leathery dark green leaves. The leaves tend to cluster at the top of the current season's growth like a rhododendron tends to do. Uh, they're a wonderful leathery dark rich green. Uh, it makes a nice tub specimen. So you yes, could it consider it as a tub specimen. I mean, it's really quite showy, isn't it? It is. It's a lovely plant. Uh, it would grow well in warmer areas if you've got a fernery or those sorts mm. of conditions to grow it in. Um I mean, it's, if you could cope with sacrificing the flowers and the leaves, that'd be nice in floristry as well. Well, yeah, I would like to because it's slowish growing. You can't really harsh. pick much. Yes, no. yeah, it's one of those things. Maybe a spray on the tables mm, about all you can mm, afford mm. to cut. Mm. Uh, but it is pretty. a very, very charming shrub. Uh, there's only two species in the genus. Uh, there's the one from Tasmania, and there's one from the sort of. 
uh, almost the subtropics up in New South Wales, mm. uh, up in the hills there, mm. which is unfortunately slightly frost tender for me, so I can't grow the other species. Mm. I have tried, but it gets leaves about three times longer, and it's a oh, wow. really remarkable looking plant. And I think it's an Opterus macleayana, I think is the name of it. Um, and if anybody's got a spare plant of it, I'd love to give it a crack again. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm always prepared to give things at least two or three t- tries and mm. see if I can find the right microclimate to grow them in. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting native shrub that tends to fall through the net a bit because, you know, if people are looking for native shrubs, they're mm. tending to look for things that are tough, hardy, drought tolerant, sun loving. Uh, and if they're looking for something for a shady spot, they tend to think about azaleas and camellias and rhododendrons right. and stuff. So this plant does fall between the, the, the net or falls out of the net sometimes, but it, it is like a good be, plant. It looks like it'd be so much more um, two-spotted mite resistant rather than the mm. azaleas. It doesn't that. seem to get all the mighty things. Yeah, it looks so... The leaves look so yeah. tough. So it could be a good alternative mm. if you mm. if you don't want to have to deal with those bugs that mm. the roadies and azaleas get these days. Mm. Uh, I have seen occasional scale on it, and that's mm. about the only thing I've mm. noticed that will have a go at it. Mm. Um, unless, of course, there's a rogue kangaroo around your place or something, <laughs> you might, might well have a go at it as well. But there you go. Don't talk about road kang- road, rogue, rogue kangaroos. kangaroos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> First thing we saw when we got home the other day was one in our garden. So yeah. there you go. Well, well you'd moved out. They moved in. They did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so there you go. All right, let's move on. We have um, Ali who's down in Armandale. Good morning, Ali. Good morning. How can we help you? <clears throat> well, I have three catalpas. Yeah. Uh, all different sizes. I don't mean different ages, yeah. just different sizes and shapes. Uh, one of them was a small one, uh, about 15 feet high, and with a beautiful spread, lovely shape. Uh, But it was leaning away from um, a very tall hedge, uh, and eventually one of the main main roots started to come out of the ground, and and, uh, it was dangerous, so I cut it right down. Um, Then, of course, it started shooting, and I thought, oh, goody, you know, it's back to life, but it's now a dreadful shape. It's it's just lots and lots of absolutely straight up yeah. uh, bits of growth, and it really doesn't look very good. That's exactly what mine looks like, and I think it looks fantastic. <laughs> yeah, but you've probably cut yours more than I have. Yeah, no, but I do it every year, and I do it to get those big long canes. Uh, ah. If you leave it alone, it will start producing a canopy in due course. Oh, right. Yeah, and and it'll be multiple trunks. I mean, you could take some of those trunks away once it starts to produce a canopy, if that's what you're after. I've uh, left about four or five. Yeah, well, that's all right. There's no reason why it, is, it can't be left as a multiple trunk tree. And it'll look all right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look is in the eye of the beholder, <laughs> which is probably a good thing because some of the ugly ones out there probably wouldn't be loved if they if somebody didn't like ugly things. Um, but, um, you know, it is in the eye of the beholder a bit, but it, it will potentially make a really nice spready crown tree again. They are beautiful trees. Oh, they? I love catalpas. I mean, if anybody happens to be going up to Castle, Maine, uh, or Castle, Maine, uh, there is a seriously beautiful old one in the Botanic Gardens up there, uh, oh, right. which some bugger tried to ring bark at one stage. Oh. I don't know. I don't Hang get people. I don't get people sometimes. But anyhow, it seems to have survived the ring barking. Um, and it's got the most wonderful canopy on it. It's just the most mm. beautiful tree to sit under on a hot summer's day. Yeah. And, and I mean, that part of Victoria is not the... 
not the coolest in summer, no. um, and the Catalpa seems to cope very well. Yes. Well, I first encountered them in Canberra. Oh, yeah. Mm. Uh, and there's and a climate that is, is pretty difficult <laughs> for gardeners. Well, that's right. That's mm. right. But uh, that was what inspired me when I came back here. Uh, I thought, no, I must have one of those. Yeah. Oh, no, they're a great tree. And look, because you've had to cut that one down because it was leaning, it will take time to resettle again. But because it's got a big root system under it, it'll grow like the Dickens. Yeah. And within, a, within two or three years, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you've got a quite respectable tree back again. Oh, well, that's good. Mm. Because I really, you know, hated having to cut it down. Yeah, yes, it is. It's awful when you have to do those things sometimes. But as I do point out to people, plants are actually the paints you're creating a picture with. Mm. If the paints aren't working, you use different paints. That's right. (laughs) So you have to be ruthless sometimes in a garden. (laughs) Indeed. Well, thank you very much for that. That's a pleasure. Okay, bye. Bye. All right. uh, Next up we have David, who's in Cheltenham. Good morning, David. Good morning. (laughs) Go ahead. We've uh, we've got um, a, a five or six year old sajoa tree which we planted to replace a very elderly one in another part of the garden, and it started with fruit. And this year we had small crops, about thirty fruit, um, but good size, about size of a duck's egg. Um, and we need to, to prune it. It's just got to that size where it's beginning to touch the orange tree on one side and the lemon tree on the other, and it's encroaching onto the pathway. So I need to know how to prune it because I don't want to stuff it up. Well, I find them really, really easy to prune, David. Um, I've um, been pruning my fajos, which I've got one section of about five trees espalier along a driveway. I kind of actually more of a narrow hedge, really. <laughs> <to come. laughs> you could call it a fedge, as a in fe- a cross yeah. between a hedge and a fence, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a fedge, actually. <laughs> and um, I'm really brutal with that, partly because it gets so high I can't even get the highest fruit. I mean, they do drop to the ground too, but it gets too hard to manage, mm. on, even on top of the tallest ladder. And then it, if it comes out too much wider, then I can't get the car in the driveway. So, you know, these are kind of yeah. inconveniences. <laughs> and then the one at the back, it's a big tree. It's about 20-odd years old. Uh, well, when I say it's a big tree, it's a big tree for a fajoa, so it's a small tree really. But again, I don't want it to get any higher, so I'm really brutal with that every year, and with all of them every year, and they just seem to fruit more and more. Yeah, for that so you're, you're not uh, discouraging fruiting by the No, pruning. no. Mm. Um, the only thing I would say is, to me, I've noticed it's the timing. So as soon as they're fruited, which is now, which I've brought in a couple of my last... You know, last for Joe's, which are only really around because I've had them in the fridge. But some people have still had a few around on their on their trees. Um, so as soon as they finish fruiting, just chop them back as hard as you need to. I mean, when I say that, I don't mean back into dead wood. I mean mm. leaving green wood. And it seems to they seem to produce more and more fruit. So I wouldn't so be no, too. So in other words, it's tending to produce the fruit in the middle of the tree rather than around the edge. They do, they do, but not if it's, you seem to have to prune back. So you're leaving some old wood, but not. I mean, if it's been going five years and it start, and again, that's when I find they start to fruit about five years. Once you've yes. got to that stage, it's really the mature ones you can prune back quite hard, um, but not into dead wood. So as long as you've still got good green growth on the edges of the plant, which it sounds like you would have, so you can. I imagine you can prune back about. From, I'm trying to visualise what your tree is doing, what yeah, your plant's well, doing. Look, uh, yeah, look, it's probably um, um, it's probably only ten or twelve feet high. Yeah, that's and, a, that's and, a good height. And mm. and uh, it, it's I wouldn't prune it at all, except that it is encroaching. Mm. Uh, and 
uh, I'm just a bit concerned that if I give it a, an overall haircut, I might be cutting out. No, it doesn't seem to be a problem. And um, yeah, so as long well, as you're it, pruning it, off about say um, one foot or thirty centimeters yes. all over, that wouldn't be a problem. And I, as oh, I said, I find that you good. get more fruit that way. So now, mm. the one other thing about it though is that it, it's got it's very dense internally. There's a lot of internal branches. Yeah, leave all those. That's fine. It seems they seem to fruit right mm. inside. So yes, you're but, definitely but working it not, out. It's not going to suffer from lack of air. No, it doesn't seem to branch. suffer from anything. <laughs> it's hard to actually make yeah. it for Joe a suffer, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's very, <laughs> very hardy. Well, the, one, the one that we've got at the side of the, of the walk, which is probably 50 years old, um, it virtually died and we chopped it off quite low down and it shot again and now it's back to its original size. But it only gets tiny fruit. Maybe it's self-seeded. But the new one that we bought from the nursery is just brilliant. And mm, I didn't, and mm. I really didn't want to stuff it up because I'm a bit of a Joa freak. Mm. Oh, they're such good, they're such good fruits. And you, when you've got an old big tree, you get quite reliant on having that crop every year in autumn and early winter. Oh, you do, you mm. do. And I was devastated when the other one nearly died. Oh, All right, I, thanks for yeah, no, go on. I was just going to say, quite a few people have spoken to me about their very old fajoas, and I don't have a very old neglected fajoa mm. to experiment with, but. I'm speculating that if you gave them a really hard cut back, a really good feed and maybe some deep feeding, like drilling mm. holes into the soil with the bamboo stake or something like that and putting some, um, you know, some good balanced ch- yeah, slow-release yeah. chicken. Yeah, what would you feed it some, some of the pelletised manures that have a lot of other things added, like rock dust and yeah. seaweed, some of the yes. really balanced manure things, I'd put them right deep down, poke them right down deep into, mm. the, into the root zone, like maybe... a you know, a foot or two deep down, and then keep watering very, very well through winter. So it's getting deep feeding and deep watering right through winter and spring. And I think you'd be, you might be surprised with a good flowering in spring. And if you're cutting back the older growth, then the plant doesn't have to push its uh, its sap and nutrients out as far into the canopy. And so you might be rewarded with some better sized fruit and a better fruit. Oh, well, look, the fruit the fruit already the size of duck's eggs. Oh, no, I mean the old one. The old, I'm concerned oh, about sorry, the old, the old one. The yeah, old I'm, I'm suggesting reinvigorating uh, the old one so that you can get a bit more out of it if you haven't cut it down already. Yes, look, I did try, I did try what you're suggesting with the pelletized manures um, years ago before we chopped it down and let it reshoot. But you're right, it might, and it didn't, didn't do anything. Um, for the fruit size at all. They've always been small. But look, it doesn't worry me. I eat them whatever size they are. Mm. You just eat new... two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've now got two. We thought we'd only have one, so mm. that is a bonus. Mm. But I think, you know, reducing the length of the canopy will make it easier. I mean, they do look beautiful as an old gnarly tree, but they don't seem to produce oh, as, yeah. as good a fruit mm. when they've got longer branches. So, I mean, I think the combination of the deep feeding, deep watering and reducing the length of the branches with the old tree, you might find you... Um, get some get some better fruit from your old tree as well. Well, that's true. I did think that they might have been able to cope with a, a reasonably heavy prune because there were some people, and we're around the corner from the old Burner Park Nursery where William from your program used to... Ian. Provide Ian. <laughs> oh, Ian. Ian, yes. Oh, he called him William. Uh, and he used to prune our trees, but no longer, of course, and uh, no longer for Burner Park Nursery either. But the the, um, the 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 local street has a, a property with a hedge for Joe a hedge, and that mm. gets pruned pretty severely, and yet it always has fruit. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Don't be frightened of it. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I'm I'm just frightened of losing it. That's all. Yeah, I don't think you'll do that. No. <laughs> right. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye.
That number, if you'd like to join us this morning, we are running through until 9.15, so do give us a call, 94190155, to have a chat to Stephen or Karen or myself, or if you'd like to have a, a call and a speak to Anne on the outside line, 94198377, which uh, reminds me that uh, I really need to uh, to remind all our listeners Gardening Show Radiothon. It's oh, only yes. two weeks away. Yes. So yes. Um, tw- Start saving the housekeeping. Absolutely. <laughs> 21st of June, so not next Sunday, but the Sunday after, mm. it'll all be happening. And, of course, uh, we're accumulating some incredible goodies to uh, to offer to you all this year. Because, as enticement. Um, <laughs> total enticement. But, yeah, it's a reward as well. Yeah, a reward well, for listening yeah. for the last 12 months. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something to... to Pop into the garden. Yeah, I'll be or thinking about it. you all dealing with it whilst I'm in New Caledonia. <laughs> Thank <yes>. you so <laughs> much. <laughs> so, so please, everyone, a reminder: do save up your uh, your spare change. Twenty first of June, it's all happening, and as I say, we've got loads and loads and loads of goodies there to entice you with. So, uh, what's our do target tune for the gardening show this year? Have uh, you been given a target yet? We have thirteen thousand. So we have to. We that's, have to that's really a big ask. It is a huge ask. Yeah. So uh, we really need all our listeners to support us because, of course, this all goes to uh, keeping 3CR on the airwaves for another 12 months. Um, yep. It covers running costs, which, of course, with you can imagine the power bills alone. Mm. Um just because, uh, as it is, the station runs on a smelly oil rag. But, yes. But, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, it does need some capital to keep floating. Absolutely. Mm. And, and we certainly want to uh, go on broadcasting the gardening show to... Yeah, what um, would I do on a Sunday? Oh, no, I'd probably sleep in. No, uh, <laughs> Forget that. Yeah, Who needs nah. sleep? <laughs> uh, oh, dear. Karen, we haven't even mentioned yeah, look what at all you these brought goodies. in. I know lots of goodies. I know I kind of went around the garden and looked at what, what I've um, been... Eating and harvesting from, so I'll pass you around some of these to have a bit of a taste. Some um, midgem berries and some very poor looking strawberry guavas. The strawberry guava needs a big cut down and re invigorating, but they're still tasty. They're just I haven't tasted these yet. Midgem berries, great, they've been quite good this year. A bit like the um, Japanese, was it Japanese snowberry? Small, but but wineberry, sorry, but very tasty. So that's a little native shrub for a shady position. And like You'd need an awful lot if you were going to do yeah, anything but with look, it. But you if do. you've got a bit, you know, if you're having your porridge and you've got some nice mm. yogurt or some, or some muesli in winter and then you sprinkle some of those on, it's just a little mm. treat you put on the top. Yeah. So. And I assume they're a superfood. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. yeah don't, I don't go into that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we I could because then people might grow it. them more if, they, if, they, if we tell them they're it's a superfood. There's, there's something about the flavour and I'm trying to think what it, it's I relating to. I think it's cinnamony myself. but It's certainly spicy. It's almost aniseedy. To me, mm. it's it's really unusual flavour. It so is It's really flavor. hard to pin down. There is something yeah. there, and it's reminding me of something that I can't I'm think of. I'm not very good at yeah. the uh, wine tasting type. Oh yes, yes. Um, it things, smells yeah. of burnt shag feathers. Yes, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, there's a hint to me. Of, do you remember as a child ever eating a musk stick? Yeah. Oh, okay. I was quite thingy about musk sticks. Were you? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's yes. got almost a musk. Flavour to it. Mm. Oh, no, you can still buy mustard. It's not pink. Yeah, Yeah, we had to bury Craig's grandmother two years ago. And she was a musk stick freak, so oh. some of them went oh. in the in the, in the oh. grave with her. We took some musk sticks up and put them in with Nan. Oh. Um, I'm sure she would have appreciated. Oh, it. she would have. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is Ostromertus dulcis, mm. which is a lovely evergreen 
um, understory plant. Yeah, it's, it's just a weed little shrub, isn't it? Yeah, it's not a great thing. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 But because it's an Australian rainforest, again, like your um, Tasmanian laurel you brought in, something mm. that's unexpected for an Australian native. So it's evergreen and lush and likes a bit of moisture. Mm. Toler- oh, actually, it really tolerates... A, um, I would have said medium water usage, so it's yeah. not drought tolerant, I should yeah. say, but a bit like pepperberry or any of yeah, those rainforest yes, natives. Cool yeah, yeah, they need some moisture, yeah. but it's a good understory plant and has some nice coppery growth, like a lot of rainforest plants have. And then there's the strawberry guava in there, the good old um, Cidium cattleyanum. So that's a great autumn fruit. These these are all these autumn fruits, and I have to say that. Um, you know, people often think at the end of summer or, you know, January, February, March, oh, there's there's going to be no more fruits in the garden. But I find that... Yeah, the, the autumn's the, really good sometimes, isn't Yeah, it? for backyard fruits, mm. which yes. is what I classify yeah. things that are not what you're generally getting at the supermarket, I, I find this time of year amazing mm. for fruit. So I, I've had so many fruits. So you've got the... There's a very scungy-looking... Don't Luckily, with radio, yeah, you can't we, see that. You can't That's see a magnificent-looking golden delicious apple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, I've always said I've got a great face for radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, we're all here. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, your, your strawberry guavas and your yellow cherry guavas. I had yellow cherry guavas all gone. And last of the pajoas, I'll just kind of list them off because it is amazing what you mm. can get. Yes. Pomegranate, which I brought in in its own protective bag, which, just to sort of show that the um, fruits, you know, a lot of fruits need protecting mm. because birds get a lot hungrier this time of year. Persimmons were all grown in little individual bags as well. And that's the fuyu, which you can eat crisp or mushy, which as a non-astringent you can. I like the mushy. Oh, uh, well, you can eat this mushy as well, though. Yeah, but I, I, I don't see the point in having one unless it's all mushy. Oh, I love the crisp, though. Oh, I like both, yeah. Yeah, yeah so no, I, I, like, I like I it like running the, down my arms. The richness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, of the mushy. Oh, yeah. yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and now you might better tell me. But fugu, you can have both worlds. Yeah, so. well, mm. I was going to say, though, I have been told, and I, don't, and I haven't been able to test this for myself, that the non-astringent persimmons are not as good in the colder climates as the oh, astringent okay. ones. There you go. I've always been told if I want to grow them up my way, I really should stick with the astringent persimmons and it's got something to do with the ripening of the fruit and I'm not quite sure why oh, but it's something I was know. told some time ago okay. that mm. you know in places like Macedon if we want to grow a persimmon mm. we really must mm. plant the astringent ones right. so but I don't know why and I thought you might have heard no why. and I haven't been given the opportunity to try growing them in that yeah. In those sort of In fact, I'm not altogether so. sure it wasn't Louis Glowinski that told me. Oh, okay. That. Could yeah, well yeah. have been. Yeah. I have to uh, check my um, yeah, it's just one of those things Bible when I get home. And I've just assumed that it's correct. So I, mm. I was just if Louis my, says it, probably is. Well, I'm not actually <laughs> sure it was Louis. So oh, okay. Yeah, yes. So yeah, let's yeah, not, not just sure. assume it yeah, was yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. But I think it was. Well, uh, the, the non-astringents certainly grow well in Melbourne, yeah. as, as do the astringents, though. So not sure about that. Yeah. Well, anyhow, they are lovely trees. I love them as an ornamental tree anyway. They're all Oh, absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. An ideal little tree for a suburban garden. Right? Oh, very, very much mm. underutilised because the, mm. the, the fruit, the, sorry, the autumn leaf colour is probably one of the most spectacular oh, yeah. just as a regular tree, let alone mm. let alone as yeah. a fruit tree. And they don't have a, a hugely dense canopy. so No, really light. Grow, yeah, things can grow under them. Actually, one thing I will warn people, though, about persimmons, don't buy bare-rooted ones. Because? Buy pot-grown ones. Because? Their roots are very delicate and they often... Yeah. And, and, you're better to let the nurserymen pot them up mm, and grow them on mm, for 12 months mm, and then plant them out of a pot mm, uh, because if you plant a bare-rooted one and it's not in close connection with the soil really properly, mm, very straight off. Not planted really well. Sometimes they won't, in fact, shoot. 
they'll just sit there as a green stick mm. for 12 mm. months. Mm. Uh, and by that time, they've lost any chance of having any vigour. Yeah. And so mm. you better to pull them out and start again. So pot-grown persimmons are definitely the that's way a to good, grow. That's a good hint. I've certainly found them quite difficult to establish. Like their roots are certainly very sensitive, to, yeah. especially to lack of moisture in the first well, two years. So yeah. the first one I put in, which I did as a bare-rooted, but yeah. I'm, I'm okay with putting bare-rooted things in. But I take your point, a lot of people struggle with yeah. the correct procedure for that. Yes. And the first one I put in died after a couple of years, like just struggled and then died because yeah. it was very hot and dry those yeah. years. And then the second one I paid much more attention to watering and it's been fine. But, yeah, they're not easy to get established, yeah. I have so, to say. Yeah, well, pot-grown mm. ones that would are be a good generally, hint. yeah. Mm. And then water easy. well for the first yeah. oh, two yeah. years. And then they seem to tolerate a bit more oh, moisture loss. Yeah, they're reasonably drought-tolerant yeah. once they are... But I did get a, a bit of, because I didn't pay attention to extra watering in summer, I got quite a bit of fruit drop. So next okay. year, like the citrus, I've been getting good oranges finally. Um, <laughs> this is a bit early, but I thought I'd just bring it in to show, navels. Um, and, yeah, I had to, with my garden, it's a bit um, harsh for moisture. Um, not very kind to it that way. Um, yeah, the oranges had to have some extra watering. Finger limes again, they've been really good this year. Mm. This is one of the last of the regular old finger limes. I've got some red centre ones that are coming in soon. We had this on, um, had some friends visiting yesterday for lunch and we had some lovely fresh, lovely swordfish with yeah. this, with some lemon myrtle and, and pepperberry leaf, pepper leaf dried and ground over the top. And some of this, um, the, you know, the, the um, finger lime capsules spread over the top and they're just so delicious. Mm. What else yes. have I got? Well, Pam gave Lemon. me a whole pile before she went away. I and oh, I, that was I, kind of you. Yeah, and I used them quite regularly on they're things so like fish tasty. dishes and things. Oh, they're great. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're amazing. This little sort of explosion of flavour. They really, oh, are really explosion. is an explosion, mm. yes. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, they are yeah. an amazing thing, the finger lines. Yep. I'm really oh. quite taken. What else? And I've got, I've got the last of my strawberry grapes, some kiwis coming in, some pepinos. Oh, and the, probably the most exciting, uh, some avocados. Finally, getting those growing. So Pam's going to be do, taking which, some of those home. She's very happy. Do you know which cultivar you're growing? This is, is bacon. That's yeah, bacon. bacon. Yes, yeah, they always yeah, say it's yeah. the best. That's for the, the one clients. they recommend. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. from yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. But I do. But I do say now, after conferring with a lot of other backyard avocado growers, that. Um, I don't think you should just grow bacon. You really should put, and again, this comes back to your original comment about, or our original discussion about growing plants of the same species or same variety together, yeah. that you can grow, uh, this is what I'd advise people now to do, is grow uh, a has, for instance, or yeah. if you can get hold of a lamb has, which is a semi-dwarf has, because has is such a big tree, and your bacon, put them close together, grow them, say, maybe, I would grow them maybe three feet or a metre apart, yeah. and grow them as the same canopy. They're going to be a little bit different because has is spreading and bacon's more upright, but just grow them as one big tree and then you'll, if you don't have space, that is, in the, mm. in the city, and uh, you'll get much better pollination and you'll get better fruit set on both of them. On, you'll get better on the hass than the bacon anyway, apparently. I mean, my hass is only small yet, as mm. yet, so it's going to take a few years to establish the hass in the shadow of the bacon, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, because it yes. would be better to start yeah, them off yeah, together. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. So yes. that's really how you should do it, I think, now. And then when you get that inevitable fruit drop in January, February, but you, you try to stave that off by watering, which is what I did this year. I watered really carefully every week. I paid very careful attention to that. And I was rewarded this year by having about, I probably got about, look, up to 30 fruit on my um on my what would it be maybe seven to ten year old tree mm, so that's great that's good. that's good but yeah finally and that's a great plant for a great fruit for getting um a harvest in winter mm. so this time of year it's great to be able to pick those and then they ripen inside over about a ten day to two week period yep um, that's that particular variety because 
um, you know, they all ripen at different times, of course, throughout the year, and put them in a bowl mm. with some apples or quinces or something, giving off a bit of ethylene or some bananas or something. Yes. Mm, and then you can have your bake, bacon. The only issue you can is... have your bacon. Yeah, have your bacon. Yeah. <laughs> and if you've got your, if you've got your uh, lamb house, you've got your bacon and your lamb. Yeah, so well, that's right, exactly. These are, these are not plants for vegans, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I, I've often wondered why they've called them with animal names. It's hilarious, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, why yes, is it, it is. called a bacon? I'm, yeah, I, I haven't I, looked into it. <laughs> yeah, I actually assumed it might have actually been named after somebody called Mr. Bacon. I, well, I know the lamb was. It was someone called Mr. Lamb who developed yeah. the... Oh, who noticed yeah. this slightly dwarf has so but yeah. I, I assume bacon's the same but it's pretty funny it is it's really weird <laughs> it is. you know some plant names you, you really would like to know where they come from yes mm. exactly <laughs> oh look we've got a full board okay. oh oh my we, goodness we need to get that, to yes. our callers okay let's right. go first up we have terry who's in northeast melbourne good morning terry well good morning um uh, hi yes uh, i had i recently moved into a uh, a new house here well it's an existing house in the backyard, there's a uh, an apple tree, mm. which is I don't know how old, but it's uh, about a metre and a half tall, and it's about uh, uh, 50 mils diameter at the uh, at the ground level. Yeah, I, I'm wondering how successful I'd be if I were to uh, remove. I want to put it in a new position. Easy. I mean, it's not that much bigger than a bare-rooted fruit tree that you no. buy in the nursery. Mm-hmm. So absolutely no reason why you shouldn't be able to move it. The trick is with anything that you're moving, and, and I'd move the apple bare-rooted, I wouldn't try and move a great pile of dirt with it as well, um, is to just make sure you get proper contact with the soil again when you put it in a new hole. Uh, I'd prune it back uh, like you would a, a, a bare-rooted fruit tree that you buy in the nursery anyway, so I'd give it a good prune um, to outward-facing buds, try to get the vase shape in the tree, uh, and then I'd probably anchor it quite well with a couple of good stakes just to make sure it doesn't move until its roots resettle. There should be no reason why it wouldn't move perfectly well. All right, yes. Now, uh, the, the, the soil here, it's, uh, it's a horrible black, sluggy uh, sort of uh, a clay. Yeah. Uh, now, should, should I put something in the uh, in the hole? No. You should mix something with the existing soil, but putting things in holes is not always a good idea because yeah. especially in cluggy, clayey soils, what happens is if you filled that, say, for instance, you dug a hole in that clay and filled it up with good quality potting mix, what you actually end up with is a sump. Uh, so the water hits the bottom and builds up again. So mix some coarse gravel or sand, some compost, some leaf mould, some gypsum animal manure, some different. gypsum could work um, in, into the soil where you're going to plant the apple tree and, and, and incorporate it well outside the root area of the apple tree uh, and then plant into that would be the way I would go. Also, can I just say um, from having gardened a lot and that kind of soil, don't dig too deeply. So only mm. diggers, dig wide, not deep. Mm. That's that's helpful too with avoiding the sump yeah. situation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't need to move a lot of soil with an apple tree that you're shifting. You just you do it as it's they say. It's a good size, like Stephen's saying. It's perfect, really. Yeah. yeah it should be fine to mm. shift. Right, yeah, so now uh, that it's uh, uh, dormant would be the ideal time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is when you'd go out to buy one if you were buying one from the nurseries Mm. from now on. Um, So quite obviously if you're going to go out and buy a bare-rooted tree, well, it's a good time for you to bare-root one of your own. Right, yes, yeah. Okay. Okay. There's also a small citrus tree here. It's not... uh, 
it's about nursery size too. It's, it's only about uh, uh, twenty mil at the uh, at the base. Yeah. Look, if I was moving a citrus, I'd be more inclined to wait till the end of winter when the weather's mm. starting to warm, wouldn't you, Karen? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm cit- feeling cold for the yeah, citrus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Citrus trees don't really enjoy the cold weather down south here. So by digging it up now, you might actually disturb it to the point that it's it's going to struggle Make to reestablish. Make very upset. Yeah. So I would leave it till the late winter, early spring. Right, late winter for the for the citrus. Yep. Or, or even September or something. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So when the soil's on the warming up phase would be the time to do it. Well, right, yes. Uh, okay, well, thanks very much, Beth Hobson. That's a pleasure, Terry. Bye. Okay, right, next up we have uh, Lisa down in Elwood. Good morning, Lisa. Yeah, hi. <coughs> Hello. Yes, yes. We're, we're here. Yes, yes. Um, well, I've got a banana problem. Um, well, I'm not... Sure, there's a problem. I've got a big bunch of bananas, probably about 90 bananas. That doesn't sound like a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a sort of problem I'd like to solve. (laughs) That's a mini supermarket. (laughs) Well, it's about a four-year-old, well, it's a big clump Mm -hmm. of about four trunks now, but one of these trunks has actually fruited back in February, like out came this bunch, Um, and and sort of uh, like started at the top with bananas coming down, 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 with Mm -hmm. the big purple flower at the bottom. Gorgeous. Um, I've taken the actual flower bud off um, uh, probably a couple of months ago and I'm just waiting for whether they're going to actually fruit, uh, flower, uh, uh, ripen actually on the vine or do I actually chop it off and wait for them to, 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 um, to actually ripen up inside? Well, if it were mine... And I have to say, bananas and Macedon don't go. No, um, no. My Abyssinian bananas survive, but they look pretty awful after the frost <laughs> and they come back again and they're not fruiting bananas. Uh, I mean, part of the problem with buying bananas down here is that they pick them green and they ripen them after. Mm. So if you can keep them on the plant and mm. start to get them yellowing on the plant, which they'll do in due course, I guess, mm. uh, then they're going to be much more flavoursome. Well, mm. this is what I'm wondering. Do I just keep hoping... Well, I wouldn't um, hope. I'd just keep waiting. I'd be patient. Just keep waiting. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so, you're down near the beach, so you're presumably yeah. slightly warmish. Yeah. It's not that cold, no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And look, I, I think, you know, if you're going to get good bananas down south, you might as well at least leave them on the plant to ripen so that mm. they fill up their, their, their flavour in them. Uh, the only issue I would have is I'd keep an eye on them in case either rats, rats. mice, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. even perhaps bats yes, uh, might bats. find them. So just keep Some an eye protection. on them. And if, yeah, if there looks to be any chance mm. that something's having a crack at them before you get a go, well, uh, the then maybe put a, um, a, a netting, a, a netting mm. or even mm. a, a big black, a, a big plastic bag over them, you mm, know, those mm, uh, the big garbage bags. The tropics, they? Yeah, they put mm, mm. sort of, I think they use blue ones, but I don't know whether mm. that's for any particular mm. reason. Mm. Um, and they just wrap the whole thing in a big plastic bag. Okay. So, yeah, yeah don't, but don't otherwise leave it alone. Get, don't yeah. let the beasties I, I don't get know them. whether the possums would be interested. But well, they could be. They could be. Yeah. I think you do need to protect right. them. Yeah, so yeah. keep an eye on If it looks like there's even the slightest chance something's going to have a crack at them, mm. then I would put something over them to keep the animals away. At least with bananas, they have the good sense to be all in one big thing, so you can just wrap the whole mm. lot up. Yes, it makes it nice and easy. <laughs> Things get hungrier in winter. I know with my avocados, when I left some of them, the few I had last year, I left them on the tree through winter, and, yeah, I was most upset to find rats with nibbling on them so mm. you know you have to protect each fruit mm, so yeah. at least like, like Stephen said at least with bananas you can wrap the whole thing up yeah so. yeah there, there seems mm. to be uh, an economy there <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's great yeah. so you think there's no panic to actually harvest them oh no no 
No, no, I'm okay. sure of that. It's really only the beasties you'd have to watch for. Mm. Okay, yeah. No, no, it's such a thrill to sort of, you know, when, when they actually appeared, I nearly had a heart attack. Oh, it's great <laughs> fun. Yeah. yeah, that is fabulous. You should go down to Safeway and say, I've got some really fresh bananas. <laughs> yes. yeah, Make sure you take great. some photos. Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, I've got some, actually. Yeah. Good. Uh, well oh. done. Okay, all the best. Okay, yeah. bye. Okay, see you. Bye. Right, next up we have uh, Marjorie out in Hawthorne. Good morning, Marjorie. Oh, good morning. Uh, I'm ringing about Fajoas again. Uh, oh, right. They seem to be the earlier. fruit of the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering whether a Fajoa can be moved satisfactorily. Uh, I've got one which is a little bit over a metre high probably, uh, about a metre wide, but being overgrown by things that I don't want to move uh, and can't cut back very satisfactorily. Um, and so I just wonder what you think might be the chances of moving one. And oh, if so, should I cut it right much. back or what? Yeah. It's quite healthy looking. Yeah. I'd trim it back a wee bit. Hmm. Um, yeah. But look, if you can get a decent ball of root system out with it, yeah. uh, I can't see any real reason why they wouldn't shift. No, I mean, I've so never tough. tried shifting a fajoa. Never have I, but I can't. It's just like any evergreen shrub, really. Yeah, isn't it? I would have so, thought so. Yeah. I mean, if I, you know, I know camellias shift really well, azaleas shift really well. When they're that size, at least. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I don't mm. see any real reason why the fajoa mm. wouldn't move quite satisfactorily. And I'd, mm. I'd probably have a crack at it now that the cool weather set in and exactly. we've had some rain. Yeah. Because yeah. it's a good time to cut back and you mm. might even still get flowers next year. You never know. And you think that just cut it back a little bit. Yeah, look, I'd just trim it back a bit just to relieve the tension on the plant so it hasn't got quite so much foliage to support. Yeah. By a quarter or something. Yeah, quarter-ish. Mm. Yeah, mm. would probably and, be good. Uh, what do you consider the ideal position for a fajoa? Um, they like blazing hot sun. They, yeah. they will fruit in semi-shade, but they'll fruit so much better in full sun. In and full sun. they barely get a leaf burn, a le- one, you know, one or two leaves yeah. burnt on a hot afternoon in the middle of summer, so yeah. the, be- the you know the the hottest sun you can give them, the better really, and the most yeah. exposure. Oh well, it might then smile if I move it because it's a bit shaded at the moment. Yeah, mm. sounds mm. sounds like it could be a win win situation. Mm, yeah. mm. Well, thank you very much for that. Good. Okay. That's a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, bye. bye. And uh, let's see, we've got um, we've got Ken out in sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. Thanks for letting me know where I am. I was getting a bit lost. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I thought you knew your way around sunshine by now. I do. <laughs> I do. I certainly do. Look, I just thought I'd give you an update on the park. Yeah, how's yes. it going down there? Well, it's, it's, we're doing all right. Um, <clears throat> there's a whole heap of young people. It's marvellous. And <laughs> they said they're getting a bit old. One of them's one of them's thirty-seven. Oh, the poor, poor old bugger. thing! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was after forty years. I've resigned as um, president of the Sunshine Action Group. Okay. And they've taken it over. And uh, I mean, I'm still going to the committee. I'm not on the executive part anymore. I'm right. just I'm just a rank and filer. <laughs> and well. um, it's fantastic where they're up to. There, there's going to be an independent. I hope it is. Um, an independent um, uh, forum to find out what they're going to do. But nevertheless, if they do go against us, we're going to move in and we're going to... And, and also, too, we're going to be doing the planting soon. I think they're working that out at the moment. So um, thanks very much, everybody, and I'll still keep you informed and updated and what's happening. But we're, we're, we're definitely going to save the park. But just before I go, they're doing it. In in uh, Dandenong's got problems with parks, and this is over the uh, the, gov- the state government put a capping on on um, on rates 
So this is their way of updoing the rates. Yeah. Yes. Yes, That's and it's a very short-term attitude to things because once you get rid of parks, you can't get them you back again. You never get them oh, back, you, no. They're not going to get rid of this, I'll tell you. They'll have the of their life. <laughs> yeah. Over your dead body, Ken. Well, and, well, in fact, it could happen that way, Ken, so be careful. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks very, very much for your support. It's fantastic. And your show's still fantastic. It's my Sunday church. Oh, oh well... <laughs> Bless you, you my much. son. <laughs> <laughs> Said with an olive leaf. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yes. <laughs> keep Thank up you. the good work, Ken. Yep. It's great. Thank you very much. That's okay. a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Oh, it's good to see those activists out there oh, protecting yes. our environment. In the heart of 3CR. Now, which, which Melbourne uh, uh, municipality is trying to buy houses so they can pull them down to put parks in? Really? One of the inner city no, ones. Really? I, was, I, was, I heard it on the really? radio not long ago. Somebody will probably ring in and tell us. But you weren't having what, a dream, were you? No, no, I wasn't having a dream. <laughs> one, of, one of the cities uh, around the central Melbourne area yes, yeah. uh, has realised that they don't have enough park space mm. um, and they're actually trying to work out how they can buy some houses to take them away Good to heavens. put back into park space. And that's the sort of thing that can happen in due course. Wow. And in actual fact, it's really – we actually had a speaker at our last Horticultural Society meeting that, in fact, brought up something that's really interesting. When they start off new suburbs, so like, you know, they're sort of pushing mm. out into outer Melbourne areas mm. and they yep. start these new suburbs, they work out where they're going to put schools. Right. Mm. Uh, they work out, you know, all those sort shopping of centers, shopping centres, <laughs> maybe a sports ground, mm. you know, that sort of a thing. Library. Uh, a library. A mm. library and maybe some parks. But do you know mm. the one thing they never actually take into consideration? No. A cemetery. And oh. Melbourne is really struggling for space for wow. cemetery now. Right. Um, I mean, lucky, got... I, lucky I've got a plot put aside for me up in, near Dukey. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I've got my plot down in Macedon Cemetery, so I'm all, I'm all <laughs> I'm sorted. I'm very quite considerately. I've got me a little plot up near Dukey. Did she give it to you for a birthday present? <laughs> no, um, no, but I just... I gave my dad one uh, for Dad's 70th birthday. We gave him – this was a bit tongue-in-cheek because I'd bought a plot. uh, Craig had bought a plot. One of my sisters had bought a plot. And so we decided to buy Mum and Dad a plot. And so I cheekily gave it to him for his 70th birthday. The issue is now he's in it. Um, But it was really funny because when I did this, Dad was horrified. Yeah, I was thinking that. Yeah, Mum wasn't though. She thought it was yeah. terribly practical. Very sensible. Yeah, very right. sensible. Yeah. Mum yeah. wanted to go and see where it was, and Dad wanted nothing whatsoever to do with it. Uh, unfortunately, Mum passed away first, so Dad got to see where his plot mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. He didn't really want to know. Um, yeah. But they're both there together now, and yeah. it's and it was it was a very practical thing to do. Mm. But we don't have cemeteries enough around Melbourne. No, you're I right. I mean, they've got one at Truganina the where they can. Planners? Yeah, well, yeah, well. You'd think, well, you've got a plan for death as well as yeah. everything else. Yes, I'm not and about that. Th- uh, this this speaker was Kevin Walsh. Yes, of course. Oh. Uh, and he now works for the Melbourne Cemetery Trusts. Oh. And mm. one of their cemeteries, the one out at Truganina, they can only bury people right around the edge of it because they've found two exceedingly rare native plants growing in the middle of it. Uh, oh. So they've got this whole plot that I might add is surrounded by wheat farms, mm. uh, which they can't buy for some reason or other. Well, I guess the guy doesn't oh, want to sell them. No, um, oh, it could be a zoning thing. Or something. They've got this just this one little bit. That is is a cemetery, and they can't use most of it because it's got some rare Australian native Heavens. plants in it. Uh, and so, yeah, we slide them underneath or something. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking that, or I was thinking perhaps propagate these plants and put them amongst yes. the existing graves yes, to sort of yeah, then yeah, yeah. make sure that they're being pushed out there, uh, and then maybe you can disturb the other ones. The old lawn cemetery just have them as a native grass lawn cemetery. Yeah, well, exactly. You know, so yes, yeah, so That'd Kevin nice. was our speaker at the last horticultural meeting, and he was talking about the things one needs to know before one dies. Uh, 
in, about the cemeteries and things. It was fascinating. Okay. Some of the plants that have they've found in cemeteries, both native and exotic mm. plants, that you know, sort of completely unexpected, um, and uh, and how the different cemetery trusts work. You know, the sort of lawn cemeteries against the memorial ones, and the you know the the rose garden cemeteries and all that sort of stuff. It was really quite it fascinating would have been. stuff. And I reckon he had more questions at the end of that meeting than most of our speakers <laughs> ever get. Uh, was, yeah, everybody seemed to get really into this whole cemetery thing. Well, it, it does affect us all. Yeah, and yeah, it did. Yeah. It did sort of bring home something to me that I'd never thought about. You know, that, mm, that in mm. fact, when they develop new new suburbs, they don't take cemeteries into consideration. Right. So, how's That's that crazy, for an interesting really. thing? You know, I mean, we've got cultural needs for cemeteries. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of people still want to be buried or even have their ashes interred in a cemetery. Yes. You know, they want to be somewhere where that's sort of an well, accepted I place. I the statistics are, but I would have thought most people would have wanted that, actually. Yeah, I think a lot more people are going for the burn me and spread me yeah, over the top okay. of Mount Macedon mm. thing or whatever. Yes. Um, apparently, environmentally, I, I would have liked that myself, but apparently, environmentally, because there's a lot of power use in that on yeah. a practical level, it's not as good as being buried. But then I don't know environmentally when you end up with not enough space, what happens? Yeah, well, the space thing yeah. is an issue, but I, mm. I thought the same thing. Initially, mm. I was going to get cremated and then I mm. thought, oh, they're going to pollute the atmosphere with me. They mm. might as well bury me in the ground. Mm. Uh, and I actually have this odd thought that it's quite nice to have a spot where you've been interred and perhaps mm. just a little memorial there just to remind people you existed. It's sort of mm. fun. I mean, I don't mm. know what happens after. I'm, I'm not a great believer in the afterlife, but uh, I've enjoyed this one, so I'd like somebody mm. to know I was there. So mm. I've actually sorted out that my... my Stone is going to have my name, my dates, and my epitaph is going to be Gardener Planted at Last. <laughs> and nobody else is allowed to use that, right? Yeah, that's what I've decided. And I've been giving, putting it out there now. Yeah, yeah, and, and I've given strict instructions that that's what's got to happen on my gravesite. I mean, you know, Spike Milligan used I Told You I Was Sick, so I can't use that one. Uh, but I figure Gardener Planted at Last is pretty good, actually. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's what's going on on my gravesite, hopefully in a long time long from now. Long, yeah. Long, yes, long yes, time. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, we've got, uh, firstly, Ken's rung back to say they're pulling down four houses in Turak to extend oh. the park. Yeah, well, there you go. There you go. So yeah. there's one example. Yeah. So that's great. And uh, Pam in Coburg picked her bananas a month ago. Yeah. Goodness, she suggests wow. picking when no obvious ridges are on the skin and when the black dead flowers can be brushed off. Also leave a long stem when cutting them off. That's mm. a good hint. A bit like the avocados. Yeah, yeah, be, yes. yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep, the, mm. keep the stems on them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, there you go. I See, wonder, did she, when did she pick them green or yellow? Well, I'd say by the sound of that, she picked them green, but I'd still yeah. like to leave them on the plant if I could yeah. because I, I know having been both. to the tropics yeah. on several occasions, freshly picked yellow bananas mm. off the plant taste like nothing you buy in the shop. It has to ripen the natural sugars, you yeah. would think. Yeah, well, the like most left. fruits, you know, yes. if you can leave them on yeah. the plant until they yes. ripen, they're, they're much yeah. better. So exactly. that would be my preferred mm. technique, I reckon, mm. if I ever had the chance of growing a banana yeah. at Masson. I run out of space as well. I, I would, I would hedge my bets, and I'd have to take off a couple just to see what would happen. <laughs> yeah, well, and look, that's part of the fun of gardening, isn't it? Too, it's that yeah, experimentation yeah, yeah, to yeah. you know work out the best technique for you. Oh, exactly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah so it's all got to work for us. And somehow. your garden, you know, there'd be such a difference between Coburg and Eltham, you know. Just well, exactly. Where that place is in Coburg, yeah. and yeah. what beautiful concrete walls or brick walls she's got around it to give it that extra heat. So, mm. 
Oh, they've been green in Queensland. We've, had, oh, yes, we've yes. now had a, mer- a message saying that they picked them green in Queensland and uh, watched the sap. Yeah. Or does it burn or something? Hmm. Yeah. But I mean, all the, all the green right. ones just then go into storage and, yeah, you and know. Yeah, and they put mm, all sorts of mm. fumigants in there and all sorts of things yeah, go on. I mean, I, I just like the idea of things being as natural yeah. as possible if you're doing them in your own home garden. Mm. Uh, I just think that's the way it well, should that's, go. That's the whole point of growing your own, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, if I want toxic vegetables, I can buy them in a supermarket. <laughs> um, so, you know, so, yeah, and that's what we often say here when people say they've got a bug or a pest problem in their veggie garden. It's better sometimes to, you know, do minimal things, you know, go out there and stand on things or squish mm, them between mm, your fingers mm. than to start spraying chemicals around because as soon as you mm. do that, you might as well not be gardening well, it's defeated place. the whole no. purpose as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Yeah, same with me. And I always figure that you're not going to starve. You know, so no. if, you, if you don't get a crop of a certain plant uh, – actually, I'm going to have a lot of broad beans this year. I don't know whether – Oh, are you? Excellent. Well, what happened was I, 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 I sowed a crop <laughs> of broad beans and for the first time in my life I actually had problems with them. And oh. I think it was a bush rat that was coming oh. in. And there were little neat holes everywhere there was a seed. Oh. And so I oversowed again, tried a second time, and it mm. did it again. So half the batch of broad beans germinated, mm. uh, and I thought, oh, that's not going to be enough. So I put in another batch, which all germinated. So I've got about one and a half times the normal amount of broad beans I put in. <laughs> and because the other ones were put in early, they're already starting to flower, and the other lot are only, I don't know, in the old measurements, about six inches tall at the moment. Um, so I may be able to push the crop out a bit by having mm. such Well, you've a, got staggered planting, yeah, so yeah. it may be Yeah, great. so it may be working. And yeah. I tell you what, the best thing I've ever done with my broad beans is to use weld mesh. Uh, over the top or yes. on the sides? What I did was I laid the well mesh on the ground and I sewed mm. the beans into every second hole. Yes. Because they were mm. sort of, I suppose, mm. in the old measurements, four-inch well mesh maybe. Yep. Yep. So I put a bean in every second hole, so that made it nice and neat and tidy. Yep. And then as the beans germinated, I put You've four star stakes in the corner. Lifted it up, And you? lifted it up, and I just used some of those cable ties yes. uh, oh, through the star stake holes yes. uh, to suspend it. Mm. And, and when they got up to a certain height, I then lifted it again. So I've now got it up to sort of... Oh, I suppose, getting on towards a metre high. Okay. And the broad beans are sort of each sticking up above. Is, um, and each one's got its own support. That's a great cool. idea. And then in the summer, I can turn the well mesh on its side and grow peas or something yeah, up. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And nice and so it just mm-hmm. recycles it. So the only thing, and if I if wanted to be really, really good at recycling, I wouldn't use the cable ties because you've got to cut them to uh, put the next one up. Get, so you can get, you have to search around for them, Um Cable ties that you can open and reuse. Oh. Again. Yes, you can. Oh, because I've just Amazing. been cutting them off. I only have to do it the once yeah, because I just lift yeah. it to the yeah, next level. You can get them. So I waste four cable ties. Yeah. But, you know, I've had – I can remember when I was on Gardening Australia, some guy sent in a viewer's tip where he said you put all these stakes in and you wind all this string across and you make little pockets for each plant. And by the time you've done that – You're exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> And and all that string becomes basically pointless afterwards because yeah, to try yeah. and unwrap it all and reuse it if it hasn't rotted. Reusable is good. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So the well mesh is fantastic. I just bought mm. two lengths of it that I just reuse every year mm. and, and I could have them for the next 20 or 30 years still reusing Easily, them. Yeah. Uh, and look, some people may have access to sort of secondhand well mesh that's lying mm. around somewhere yeah. or whatever. You I had to buy it. mine, yeah. but yeah. Um, I bought them the shape they'll I wanted. they last for years. Yeah, yeah and they last yeah. for ages mm. and it's a really good way of growing your broad beans so they don't flop everywhere. They, they do a similar thing 
in Switzerland in the around around my sister's village anyway, and they grow their raspberries up through that. But I don't know whether they're growing more dwarf varieties or whether theirs just don't get as long and leggy because yeah. they have a shorter growing season. But yeah, all of theirs are neat coming up through little things like that. Yeah, well there you and, go. Yeah, there you go. Great method so, of control. Yeah, so you're I can not, have a lot of broad beans. On that note. We've run we out of to, time. Yes, we need to stop. It's, we it's, do have to stop. Um, so but, of course, we'll be back again uh, next week at 7.30. And I'll see you in a few weeks' time when I get back. Have a wonderful time. Karen. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. More than a few time. weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, please, everyone, remember Radiothon 21st of June. We'll have lots and lots of goodies for you. So uh, keep that in mind and save your, uh, your sense We'd love to. Yeah, and your dollars. And your dollars would go a long way. Okay, till next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.